never meant to die here. Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. We've always defined ourselves by the ability to overcome the impossible. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. Oh, you're not prepared for this. Today, we are reviewing Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Our mission does not work if the people on Earth are dead by the time we pull it off. This podcast is spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Here we go. All right, all right, all right. Today we're discussing Interstellar, starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Michael Caine, Bill Irwin, Ellen Burstyn, directed by Christopher Nolan. This is the now playing co-host whose honesty is always set at 100, even though that's not the best way to deal with my co-hosts, Arnie. (laughs) Stewart in LA. And this is the giant sarcastic robot, Jacob. Here we are, the what we've been leading up to by this point. It's been over the span of several years, but we've reviewed every Christopher Nolan film. That's true. You have to jump all the way back to 2010. We started with Inception, was the film he made two films ago. And then when we did Batman, of course, we covered Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. So we're caught up. Nine films. And he always seemed to do the one for the studio, one for him. I mean, we also had Man of Steel. I think we'd be remiss to not look at his influence on that film while I credit so much of it to Zack Snyder. I definitely got a Man of Steel vibe watching some of Interstellar. I think that Nolan's influence there might have been larger than I gave credit for. Really? I'm not going to hold too much of Man of Steel against Nolan. I I think that's someone trying to ape him. I'm going to blame that still on Snyder. Yeah, I'm not sure even what you mean. I think the Hans Zimmer score is similar, but no, I, I don't see much comparative. Oh, you don't see a lot of between Earth in Interstellar and Krypton in Man of Steel? Mm, we'll talk about it, I guess. But yeah, Interstellar, Nolan's next original film out this weekend. A lot of news about the IMAX screening. I saw this in 4K and in regular digital screenings. Did either of you see the IMAX? And if so, did you have the audio problems? Yes, and yes. (laughs) I saw this movie twice. I saw it Tuesday as soon as I could. The second screening in Los Angeles at the big old IMAX Chinese theater. And yes, it was kind of alarming that the first five minutes were almost inaudible. Uh, You know, it's great that Nolan has pushed theater owners to go back to film but not if they don't know how to thread it. And I I don't know what they did to the optical track, but there were huge sound problems at the beginning of this movie. And I think there's sound problems inherent in the movie anyway. I went back hoping I could understand what I was hearing. And this second screening I saw last night on Friday, there were some focus problems. So I just feel like people don't know how to project film anymore. And maybe he would have been better putting this out on a video. Yeah, I just saw a regular old, I guess, digital screening. They had a 35 millimeter projection screening too. I didn't see that one, but I didn't know that there was inherent sound problems. I thought that might be an issue with this. I guess we'll talk about the mix. There, there's a key scene and I don't know what the guy's saying. It, was, <laughs> it took me back to Dark Knight Rises. Like this is seems like something Nolan is intentionally doing, trying to make it hard to understand. It's the ADR's fault. I will say this. The strongest of not recommends for whoever did the sound mixing to this movie and Nolan and the actors for making the choice. What they have to do is they realize most of this movie is explained in expositionary dialogue to make it seem natural 
they drop words. They're just like quantum physics. I mean, like what? <laughs> Wait, what? And I mean, it's infuriating to me. But it's the mix of the sound. It's the fact that the score is louder than the words. It's the way the actors deliver it. It is hard to get what this movie is telling us, and it's telling us a lot. See, I didn't have that problem to the point that on the second viewing, I felt like I was auditing a physics class. <laughs> I was like, we have to get the script because I have to read it. There's no <laughs> yes. subtitles. I'm going to have to read this thing because I cannot understand what people are saying in this movie. And then the script was $22, and I couldn't find it. I'm like, oh, brother. I got it to you. Yeah, you got me an early version. It should be said, not only have I seen this movie twice, I read Jonathan Nolan's first draft, written in 2008. Somewhat different, but uh, you can definitely see the origins of the movie we're going to talk about today in it. And I think I'm going to be able to bring a lot of perspective about where this project started as opposed to where it ended and what Christopher Nolan's influence might have been. Because keep in mind, although Jonathan Nolan is the credited screenwriter through most of these drafts, This movie was earmarked for Spielberg. This was supposed to be Spielberg's next film, and he was going to do it all the way up until, I think, a year and a half ago. Why did he pull out? Do we know? Uh, I think other projects. You know, Spielberg is always the bridesmaid. Getting him to commit is very difficult. He is usually attached to everything from Harry Potter to just about any prestige project. He was probably busy executively producing Transformers 4. (laughs) Yeah, he is involved in a lot of things. And so having him focus on one thing, I think, can be difficult. And I think that the opportunity just passed. And maybe he realized that this was more suited for Christopher Nolan than himself. Did you really need subtitles or to read the script? I mean, couldn't you just go read Dylan Thomas's poetry and call it a day? (laughs) (laughs) They do use that a lot. Yeah, I think it's in here four times. Yeah, there's a lot of techno-speak in this movie. One of the things they're very proud about is the fact that they're going to use hard science and real data to inform the audience. We're going to get a smarter sci-fi movie. This is the pitch here because they're going to science. However, that only means so much if you can hear what they're saying. And the enunciation in this movie, the optical and sound problems that I was having, it was a struggle for me to get the plot of Interstellar. Arnie, do you have it? Should we just go ahead and get into it and we can start talking about the whole movie? Sure. Somewhere in the near future, Earth is dying. The blight has started to spread, killing crops and converting our atmosphere to 80% nitrogen. The humans who don't starve to death are going to suffocate. In trying to deal with the lack of food, America's turned into a farming society, and very few people are even allowed to enter college. The world needs food, not intellectuals. Machines are used primarily for farming, and people don't even believe man ever walked on the moon. One of these farmers is Cooper, McConaughey, a former test pilot turned corn farmer. He lives on his farm with his 15-year-old son Tom and 10-year-old daughter Murphy. But Murph starts to notice something strange in her bedroom, such as books and other items falling off shelves. She thinks it's a ghost, but when a dust storm hits and forms strange patterns in Murph's room, Cooper realizes something is up with gravity, and, in fact, the dust is falling in such a way as to give them coordinates. Following those coordinates, Murph and Cooper discover a secret NASA installation led by Professor Brand, Michael Kane. Brand knows that humanity is doomed on Earth, so in secret, NASA has been working on a spaceship to take humanity to another planet. A wormhole has mysteriously opened near Saturn, and 12 astronauts were sent to 12 different planets to see if any were habitable, and three have reported back success. 
Bran seems excited by the gravitational anomaly in Murph's room and instantly recruits Cooper to pilot this mission to space, which is going tomorrow. <laughs> the goal is to find a planet to which humans can travel, Plan A. However, Brand hasn't been able to solve the problem of how to create a space station large enough to take the surviving humans, so to ensure at least the species survives, Plan B is a number of frozen embryos that the crew can use to build a new human population in deep space. Cooper is resistant to go, not wanting to leave behind his children, especially since, due to the theory of relativity, they're gonna keep getting older and he's gonna stay the same age. <laughs> Well done! Nice, dazed, and confused reference. So appropriate. <laughs> but he does agree, though Murph won't forgive him for leaving her. The crew of the spaceship Endurance is Cooper, Brand's daughter Amelia, a scientist played by Anne Hathaway, a geographer Doyle, played by Wes Bentley, and physicist Romilly, played by David Gassy. They are also aided by two robots, formerly Marines, named Case and Tars. Their travels are wrought with failure. The first planet is a water world that kills Doyle, and due to the proximity of a black hole, it takes over 20 years Earth time for them to spend the few hours to find that out. Worse, back on Earth as decades have passed, Murph became the apprentice of Professor Brand, trying to crack the equation of how to get all the humans out the planet. But on his deathbed, Brand finally admits it was a lie. There is no way to save the humans on Earth. Murph transmits this to the Endurance, and Romilly tells Cooper the only way to get extra data that might save humans is to probe the black hole and see if any information can be retrieved. The second planet was visited by mission leader Mann, played by Matt Damon. But it's inhabitable due to an ammonia atmosphere, and Mann transmitted success just so a rescue party would come for him. He tries to kill Cooper to keep his secret, and succeeds in killing Romilly, I think. I'm not quite sure why Romilly dies. We'll have to talk about it. But... Man steals a spaceship to try to hijack the Endurance. His failed dock causes another explosion that kills Man and leaves the Endurance in a poor state. So Cooper and Tars both sacrifice themselves to save Brand and the Endurance, falling into the black hole. But in the black hole, the Man and Robot find they enter a fifth dimension where time can be traveled as easily as space. But the nexus of all of this is Murph's childhood bedroom. The ghost sending the messages was Cooper all along. Using Morse code and a watch, Murph programs in all the data TARS gathered from the black hole, and in present day, Murph gets the watch and realizes the code, finding the formula that saves humanity. And the Endurance makes it to the third planet, where Brand, alone with Case, begins to prepare for human arrival. The fifth dimension collapses, and Cooper is left floating in space around Saturn, where he's found and rescued. His daughter is now an old woman, played by Ellen Burstyn, celebrated for saving humanity. Cooper visits her on her deathbed, before going out to join Brand in space, as credits roll. Okay, well, we talk about this being a Christopher Nolan film, one of the things we always talk about, non-chronological storytelling. There's not a lot of it in this movie, but we do get what we get in the beginning. And the end. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I suppose that's true. He likes to dice it all up at the beginning, confuse, and then hopefully clarify as we go along. Although, how much clarification... I'm curious to know, Jacob, you've only seen this movie once? Just saw it once, yes. Oof, that's rough. But hey, I've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, so I felt like this was just another viewing of that almost. We'll get into it. Absolutely. I mean, take Close Encounters, Contact, 2001, Slice Dice, put it in the microwave, Interstellar! Don't forget Signs. There's some Shyamalan <laughs> here, too. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a whole lot of time jumping here. There's these little video segments, like you're watching a documentary. They're setting up the end, like you know something has happened. It's a way to give you exposition, but I, I got that those little 
segments of people talking about the blight. We'll need to talk about the blight because I'm not sure what it is. But yeah, you, you get those little moments, but for the most part, pretty linear storytelling here. All right. We've reviewed all of Nolan's films, and so many of them have those twist endings. Memento. It was all a setup that he did to himself. Inception. Was he really in a dream the whole time? Prestige. It was science, not magic. And so I went into this. I had to see it twice because the first time, I'm on my guard. I'm trying to figure it out beforehand and see what the clues are. So I'm seeing all of these beginning videos, and I'm like, what is going on? It feels like I'm walking through Abraham Lincoln's presidential library, and yet I'm getting a weird When Harry Met Sally feeling because all these people telling stories are old. (laughs) (laughs) When Harry Met Sally, okay. You know how they all had the interspersed videos? I'm like, oh my god, please don't tell me. Throughout all of Interstellar, we're just going to cut to random old people. (laughs) (laughs) They do that a lot. They do it in Shoah as well. I don't know that they were making a When Harry Met Sally reverence. I'm not saying they were making a reference to that. He ripped off enough other movies. He doesn't have to rip off Reiner. I'm just saying that's what my mind went to when I saw all these videos of old people talking about the blight and the dust storm. The twist is painfully obvious, thuddingly obvious. So obvious that when I saw it this first time, I knew instantly and hoped I was wrong. That, okay, we have these videos. We also have a plane crash. We have Matthew McConaughey waking up from a nightmare and being confronted with his daughter. And she says, I thought you were my ghost. And I'm like, please say that he is not going to end up being the ghost that's in her room. Oh, yes, yes. I'm right there with you. Yeah, that's too obvious. I mean, like, this is worthy of Shyamalan. Like, you're better than this, Nolan. You don't (laughs) have to go there. But the twist, if there is a twist, is that. Is that there's a poltergeist in her room that she thinks is communicating messages. He's a man of science, and he discounts it. But in the end, irony of ironies, he is going to be that for her, and they're going to save the day. That's your twist, and I don't think it's well disguised. Yeah, I don't know if they're trying to disguise. I thought it was so obvious that wasn't even a disguise. I guess I was expecting another twist because, yes, I'm like, okay, he's the ghost right from the beginning. I'm there too. There were one of two options. Either it was aliens or it was McConaughey himself, and I was pretty sure it was McConaughey, but I wasn't 100% sure because Weird things happen in this beginning. Like, I was thinking back to Stephen King and trucks. All the combines just surround the house for no apparent reason. And a drone Indian aircraft is flying overhead. I'm trying to piece all this together on the first watching to see, is there something going on? Is a comet going on overhead and the aliens are possessing our machines? There's not that many of them in this future, but what few they have. But no, it was pretty obvious. I was really hoping I was wrong. I was so hoping I was wrong on that. But the final reveal of that we'll save for the end of our conversation. But yes, that is what's going on here in this future. Now, they never say how far ahead it is, right? I know because I read the script. There are dates in that original 2008 draft. And if it is in keeping, I think the way we're supposed to think of it is we're a couple years away from Matthew McConaughey being born. His character is 40 years old at the start of this movie. And so I think we're about... 50 years in the future. The wormhole would just be opening up at Saturn right now. And so this is a future 50 years ahead. Okay, that's about what I was guessing. I also, especially on the second viewing, tried to figure out Matthew McConaughey's age because 
if his daughter's 10 and then he's gone for about 25 years, I'm like, am I supposed to believe Matthew McConaughey is younger than me at the start of this film? Because <laughs> <laughs> I did the math. She's 10. He's gone for 27 Earth years on that black hole. He's supposed to be 37? No way. Yeah, John Lithgow is the uncle of these children, uh, the father-in-law of Matthew McConaughey. He's got a very useless role, but he does say at some point you were born 40 years too early or 40 years too late. I think he's telling us at that point that, yeah, he's more or less 40. Yeah, poor John Lithgow. Here he is just playing kind of a echo of what he did in Planet of the Apes, minus the <laughs> Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah, I like seeing him, though. I think he's a good performer, and I, I again, I try to say spoiler-free for this, and so I didn't know he was here, so it was a nice surprise. Yeah, spoiler-free is a big thing. I didn't seek out spoilers, but God knows they weren't giving us much. Doing just the credits for this episode off what little they would drip about this movie was difficult, but I did know to save humanity, McConaughey had to go away. That's what's set up here. And the one thing I knew coming in, though, was that this was going to be hard sci-fi, that this was Nolan's 2001, and basically a statement about how humans need to continue to explore space, and with America cutting funding to NASA and space exploration not really being much of a priority anymore, he's hoping this film will inspire people. And I certainly feel that message very heavy-handed in this first half hour as McConaughey's Cooper has to go have a parent-teacher conference with a teacher who says we never landed on the moon, it was all propaganda to make Russians spend all their money on worthless rockets, and that the only machines are for farming. I really like this, actually. I, the scene doesn't add much to the story we're going to get, but that parent-teacher conference, I really like the idea that what the government is trying to do is just lower people's expectations. This is a future in which people thought they were going to have better lives than their parents and are finding out they're not, that we're going to go into another depression here. So they just want everyone to feel like, eh, they never accomplished those things. They're discrediting the greatest generation. They're making people look to the dirt and not to the skies. It's a big theme in this movie. I do like this setup. Yeah, don't go to college. Only a select few get to go to college. We really need you guys to be farmers. There's this whole blue collar versus intellectual thing going on. I, I think a lot of stuff that mirrors debates going on in our present society. And I'm not surprised that this is another hit piece for NASA, just like I felt 2001 was like where they're trying to inspire us to, yeah, let's go to the stars. One was before we had ever got to the moon. This one is coming out of time where like, ah, well, let's use our money for different resources. I like the setup. What I don't get is the blight, though. At first, we've talked about these poltergeists, literally poltergeists. It doesn't shock me now that Spielberg was involved at some point. Yeah, it's close encounters and poltergeists. Yes. And I thought at one point, I'm like, are there invisible aliens that have destroyed the Earth? They talk about things like eating the oxygen in the air and people are eventually going to suffocate. But I was never quite sure. Is this by the end? I'm like, OK, it must have been a natural disaster thing. But there's so many talk of invisible or fifth dimensional aliens. I'm like, was this an alien invasion? And this is how they're taking over the Earth? I think we're meant to be confused as to what the blight is. But yeah, the blight is left vague. I think that, yeah, in the beginning, as we're trying to put this world together, we think it could be related to these gravitational forces that are, yeah, making drones and farm equipment come to the Cooper house. What it ultimately seems like to me is some kind of virus that is spreading plant to plant, that it gets in the field and there's nothing you can do once it's there. You have to burn it out. And basically, we're losing all our crops. They say 
Eight years ago, we lost wheat. This year, they're losing okra. There's only one more crop to farm. So we're all going to be children of the corn in this future. (laughs) Get your Malachi and Isaac ready because we're praying to the corn god. He who walks behind the rows has won. Need that urban (laughs) harvest corn that can resist the blight. (laughs) Indeed. You know... While I find this setup interesting, and I really do, and I do like the parent-teacher conference just for McConaughey's performance and some of the lines he gets to deliver in that scene where the teacher wants the daughter to be punished and he's going to reward his daughter for talking about space exploration by taking her to a ball game. I like all that, but I'm not a fan of any agenda whenever it's extreme. And this is just coming off like extraordinarily staunch liberalism about criticizing those who say climate change isn't happening. I mean, that's what I took this as, is climate change kind of thing. We're destroying our own natural resources so Earth can't sustain us. Whatever root cause Jonathan Nolan came up in his head for what caused the blight, there's more than just a plant fungus. There's massive dust storms that just come up. People are getting bad lung disease because the air is so polluted with this dust. One of those opening vignettes talks about how you had to keep your plates upside down just because all the dirt that just blows everywhere. Earth is falling apart and the government is just doing a propaganda job. You know, I think they're saying the government is Republicans just trying to keep the lights on and keep people eating and ignoring the fact that Earth is falling out from beneath us. And that's where I saw Krypton. I don't know where you get this political agenda. I didn't see it. I didn't see this as a climate change hit piece. You know, trying to convince us all to stop using plastic bags. This seems like a typical science fiction setup. The Earth is dying. They don't go into really details why it is. They just give us little hints. I don't get what you're seeing there, Arnie. Yeah, I get what you're seeing, Arnie, but I don't think I would go as extreme as as saying Republican, Democrat, red state, blue state, kind of. We failed. Human beings have allowed the environment to fail to the point where, yeah, they're giant windstorms. And I think it's the windstorms that are aiding the fungus to spread. This fungus might exist now, but it can't get from crop to crop because it doesn't have the transmission. Whereas now that there's these mega winds that blow all this dust everywhere, it's going to get in everyone's crops. And yeah, I think that it's a failure of everyone. The governments have failed. It should be pointed out, there is no more U.S. government anymore. Militaries have collapsed. Drones are circling the planet with nobody observing what data they're picking up. Yeah, it's like a 10-year-old drone they call out. Like, it's they don't even know why it's still in the air. And if you want to talk about ghosts, this drone is a ghost from the first draft that, quite frankly, should have been cut. It's kind of an exciting scene to see the family chase it down and haul it back home. But in the original draft, this drone is sent from beyond the wormhole back to give the information that Murph is going to use to save the planet. It is the plot device that saves us all. Here, it's just a flourish. It's just another way of saying our society is breaking down. When I rewatched this film, it really struck home to me how much of the stuff I was paying attention to the first time, like those combines all coming to the house and this drone, really was pointless. And this movie... I'm going to state right now, I think it's overly long. I think you could have cut 20 to 40 minutes out of this movie, and at least 10 of it's here in the beginning. The only reason I can see that they have this whole, let's chase the plane scenario, is to show family bonding. It's the only thing the entire movie that Cooper, Tom, and Murph do together. 
And I think it sets up that Cooper is this engineer. You know, you, you see McConaughey, he's, he's looking grizzled, he's looking dirty, but no, he's actually a really super smart engineer and he's taking this drone apart. What I don't get is when all the farm equipment just goes to the house. What did he do as a ghost to make that happen? I think what we're going to get at the end in a lot of words, some of which are audible, some of which are not, <laughs> is the idea that he is manipulating gravity and that is going to pull things towards the house. So in his communication with young Murph using that watch, that magnetic gravitational experimentation had these residual effects. That's basically what I took as well. I don't know that he did it. I mean, they keep talking about a them, this big capital T them, and it's implied they might be aliens. In the end, per the plot summary, it's future humans. But when they put Murph in that space where he can communicate, it seems to only be at a period of time. So when all this happens, the drone, they say, maybe the drone's following something. I think that's around the time that the portal behind there opened and so it changed gravity because it doesn't just happen when things are being manipulated. Cooper says he had to recalibrate all of the combines because their navigation system went wrong because something magnetic or something gravitational changed. Yeah, but that change came from what was going on in the house. Right, whether it was him pushing books or whether it was the fact that future humans allowed him to have the ability to push the books, something happened at that point yeah we'll talk about that at the end i definitely got more of it in the second viewing but really all this serves is set up to the family but this poltergeist leaves and this was really hard for me to see in both i didn't have the audio problems you guys seem to have in either viewing but what i did have trouble just seeing or understanding is when they have the dust storm in which future coop leaves the message of the coordinates in the dust are they seeing this in lines in the dust is it yes. the way the piles of dust are appearing on the ground thin and thick lines yeah thick means one thin means zero it's a binary code that is the coordinates you would use on a map to get to nasa and <laughs> i know we're gonna talk about it at the end but i want to talk about this right here so future coop is manipulating that so that the dust falls a certain way. Yes. But present Coop starts throwing quarters. It's again like Poltergeist when they put Carol Ann on the kitchen floor and she scoots. He's throwing quarters and they're being sucked down like there's some powerful magnet there. I mean, is future Coop pushing down? Well, no, you see him. It's almost like he's playing a harp or something. He's manipulating these strings of light. And I think that's what's affecting the gravity. That's what's pulling the dust down certain ways. Yeah, and he's trying to manipulate the dust. The quarters, the farm equipment, the drones and all that, that's just byproduct. He's not trying to get that drone. It's drawn there because of, I don't know, science. It should be said right now. The <laughs> fact that I'm going to try to defend the science of this movie is a failure in and of itself. I had a high school education in science and took none of it in college. I don't know why quarters and metal would be drawn to gravitational fields more than other things, but I think that's what they're telling us. If yeah. you have something metal, it'll be drawn to that space. No, that's actually not what they're telling us. What they're saying is the gravity screwed with the navigation systems on the robotic combines. It's not that they were pulled there because they were metal. But then, but why the quarter? Because it was being pushed down, like the dust was being pushed down. Like there were just spots where the gravity was heavier. 
Yeah, I thought Cooper just like dropped a quarter and you saw it thunk down to tell you gravity was different there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's important to dwell on this detail. I mean, there's a lot of other things I got bigger questions about. I suppose the reason I'm on this detail is everything that happens with the poltergeist seems to happen for a reason. It's all a message. And the quarter is the anomaly in that. Well, I I don't think it's all a message. Again, (laughs) skipping to the end. At first, it's McConaughey back behind the bookcase as the ghost kind of just banging around and we see early on just random books falling, but later on he realizes he can manipulate it, and that's when we see more order to these manifestations. By the way, did you guys notice on that bookshelf was a first copy printing of the stand? It's the original cover. <laughs> How could I not? That spine is so thick, no one could miss that. You read that three times, Arnie? Yeah, and that was the first printing. That was the smallest of the versions. I was really hoping Mini Cooper wasn't going to try to push it, Because he'd break an arm trying to knock that thing down. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the irony being that Matthew McConaughey may end up starring in a future adaptation of The Stand. We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. But the coordinates lead them to NASA, which was dismantled because they wouldn't bomb their enemies who were starving. The government wanted to bomb the starving people just for population reduction. They asked NASA to do it. When NASA said no, they were dismantled. And then when the government realized we're all fucked, they secretly reassembled NASA just to work in secret to try to do a space program. And on a second viewing, I did catch this because McConaughey asked, where's my tax money going? And they're like, well, we don't know, but it's not going to the college. It's going to NASA to try to save humanity. I don't know how much you could believe the government stories here. I feel like they're lying about the whole, that was a conspiracy that we landed on the moon. I I feel like we got to keep the people dumb. We got to keep them farmers. I don't know how much I believe this whole story that NASA was actually fired for not bombing people. It sounds like a cover story to me. This is how we get them to go underground and and keep NASA a secret so we can try to figure this out. Yeah, there were wars. We don't know what they were, but we know that the rivets of this underground bunker, you know, Michael Caine at some point is going to say, these could have been bullets. So I guess I saved some lives. Something went terribly wrong as the environment went wrong, as the food shortage. It's not hard to imagine that we got paranoid and started to kill each other. I mean, I think that, yeah, when things go wrong, it's easy to snowball into something even more wrong. And so, yeah, we ended up killing ourselves in mass, whatever the motivation, I won't try to guess. But these are the good guys because they said no to that and they took their project underground. Should be pointed out, they're the only ones with electricity. Oh, no, no. They all have electricity. McConaughey has a laptop. How is he running it? That's sort of the strange thing. Nobody else does. But because McConaughey is an engineer, he keeps that going. It's solar powered, though. Everything else is solar powered. There's no electricity. There's no generators. Fuel itself is gone. Yeah, they call out that drone earlier was solar powered. And that's how it just kept going. Right. This is the only place, I think, that's running on real electrical power, which begs the question, if you remember those talking heads in that movie, it's coming at the end of the film, is, well, who's filming that? How is that being televised? They're telling us there's going to be a happy ending in that beginning montage, because some people are going to survive this, and they're going to be filmed and transmitted on television. And so NASA was getting ready to go to space tomorrow, because of this wormhole, that... I guess, was put there by future humans? Let's save who's doing it. I love the fact that this movie is just like every other one, from close encounters, contact, signs. It's telling us messages are coming from space. We're going to meet aliens. And yeah, the big 
trick, the fake out is that it's not going to be aliens. But for this first act, we most certainly think that they are beings, well, yeah, like we've seen in 2001, like something like the monolith, something we can't even comprehend, is guiding us towards Saturn. And uh, once we get there and go through the wormhole, we're going to find something that can save us. And you mentioned 2001. This does take a lot from a lot of movies. I think my biggest Close Encounters callback is when McConaughey is looking at the dust piles and Lithgow says, you're worshipping it. It reminded me of Richard Dreyfuss. And- well, you, I wanted to see him do the coordinates and mashed potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> but this movie, more than anything, felt like almost if somebody decided to reboot 2001. And here, this scene with NASA is equivalent to that scene in the space station, right? Where they start talking about something is occurring and we're going to get a lot of scientific techno babble that sets up the scenario about some strange space anomaly that must be investigated by people in the room. I'm just going to say, Stuart, I'm like you. I have a high school education when it comes to science. I think I took one or two classes in college. At one point, I just stopped trying to understand the science here. Like, we get all this talk about gravity here, and we got to solve this problem of gravity to get this space station off the... I don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they get into black holes, I'm like, just stop. Just stop about event horizons. Just tell me, <laughs> you need to go into the black hole to get something. Like, it is confounding. Yeah. It's real simple. We have a magic door, and we can go through it and find a planet that will support us. It's that simple, but they don't make it sound that simple. Later, this Romilly guy has like a little graphic he draws on paper and punches a hole to show you what a wormhole does. I'm like, I just play Pac-Man. It's like when you're playing Pac-Man and you go through that like door on the left side and you end up on the right side. That's what it is. That's all I needed to know. For the video game generation, that was it. But this is a movie from scientists. They don't want to just give you that. They want to educate. This is Kip Thorne not only being consulted, but producing or executive producing this. He was also involved with Contact. And they don't just want to tell you what a wormhole is. Deep Space Nine told me that in one sentence. What they want to explain is that a wormhole would be a sphere and give us lectures about it and really make sure they drive home science. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, you're making that sound like a heavy-handed mission. I think that's admirable. I think I'd like to see a movie with more science. We've seen a lot of sci-fi fantasy. Let's see something aspire to be smarter and i agree i want that 2001 vibe where it feels like hard sci-fi i like hard sci-fi but it it is so hard to understand not to hear i can hear all the words they're saying i just don't know what they mean and i think that could be a barrier i had to just make a cliff notes version as i was watching this okay black hole information wormhole takes you to another place like there's a way you could be scientific and still make that accessible to maybe the the slightly above average movie goer this i feel like i have to have a physics degree to if i really wanted to understand what they're saying and ironically going and reading reviews and what others think about this film after i saw it a lot of people were attacking it because of the science the people that i guess understood what they were talking about i'm sure that if you go into a black hole you're not transported into a bookcase it's not pure science i'm not a huge fan of hard sci-fi but i do appreciate a movie trying to take a different tact with it that said you just got to get across enough information to propel your story in a fiction film and once in a while I felt like they were crossing over to that Neil deGrasse Tyson type PBS show. That's right. That is where they're going. They're going for that hard science. And here's the problem. You need to visualize that. Again, show me Pac-Man. Show me a visual. When that guy does his paper trick, 
they're already at the wormhole. Like, do this before so that we understand it and get invested in the mission. I think that the major flaw that Nolan makes is that he puts it all to his dialogue here and that we needed visuals. We needed more of that stuff earlier. The problem was is that we spent so much establishing the family bonds and the love of the family is going to be important to the message of the later half of this movie. But to understand the mission, we needed to get to NASA a whole lot sooner than we do. We're like 40, 50 minutes in, and we should be 20 minutes in. And who can blame you, Jacob? I didn't understand what plan A was until I read the original draft. You want to know what the plan A to save everyone on Earth is? These underground bunkers that they're in, they're gonna, they have more of them or they can build more of them and they're going to push gravity so that we shoot off the surface of Earth and float across space to be space stations. That is what's happening. I got that mostly on the first viewing and much more specifically on the second viewing. Yeah. yeah. You did? How? I, I thought there was just one giant space station where this NASA bunker was, but I, I got the sense that something big has got to lift off of Earth to get to space. And there's nothing we could build that could house everyone. So some people are going to die. They keep saying we can save everyone. They cannot save everyone. I wasn't even sure how many people are left alive at this point. That's my key, too. Is It seems like a lot of people are dying very quickly. And I wasn't sure if there were one space station or many. But I definitely got the entire NASA facility is a space station. That's why yes. it's all circular is for that gravity. And the key is there's no way to get it off of Earth. I got all that just from the very first viewing. Yeah, I know. I got that Michael Caine is talking about lifting the lab up, but how that was going to save everyone on Earth, I could not understand. And it should be said in the original draft, the plan was to have gravity, I think, well, to do that, but I also think that they could use gravity to quell some of these winds and the spread of the blight as well, that we would be able to still have a camp here on Earth as well, that we wouldn't have to all leave. You can't get on one bus. Yeah. I don't understand anything. I know what gravity is, I think. All I know is we got to solve gravity. That's a problem. <laughs> yes. That's all I take away from this talk. And Michael Caine is a big fucking liar. Unlike last week when I said in The Prestige he's a truth teller, here he is lying to everyone's face as best as he can. And it's a pretty <laughs> poor poker face. I got to say, I can tell that Senovitz is lying when they're talking about this being a Lazarus project. And Matthew McConaughey's like, Lazarus had to come back from the dead. And Michael Caine's like, gulp. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He's already written us off as dead. And the way to come back is those eggs. The real plan is that we're going to take a bunch of human embryos in a briefcase on ice and take it to some place, and, and we'll just repopulate that. Yeah, and Michael Caine's character of Brand here is really pulling a, like, prestige-level trick, right? Because he's going to spend the rest of his life pretending to solve an equation <laughs> that he's given up on. He has absolutely no intent of doing this, but he's going to take young Murph as an apprentice in his bullshit. I think he does this because his own daughter was sent off to space. He wants a surrogate daughter with whom he can bond. And he can't be honest with her that, yeah, we're all fucked. So I'm going to just every day, eight hours a day, pretend to work on this bullshit. Yeah, that's the trade-off here, is that you have Matthew McConaughey as a father, and he is going to be put in a spaceship with someone who's established as a daughter. That's going to be Anne Hathaway's Amelia character. Meanwhile, their counterparts are going to team up 
on Earth, which makes no sense to me. I gotta say, the character of Murph makes no sense to me. If she is so angry that her father has abandoned her to go try and save the world, by the way, do a humanistic cause, but so angry at him, why would she go work for the people that put him in the rocket? Uh, because she's the smart one. That's how I take it. She's angry at 10. She holds some resentment as she gets to, I guess, 37. No, she's pissed at 40. I mean, she's mad. <laughs> <laughs> she's got her liquor on. She won't send a message that whole time. I do feel bad for both actresses who play Murph. It's mostly Jessica Chastain and the little girl in these early scenes. We saw her in The Conjuring. She was Cindy. Uh, oh, Mackenzie Foy? Yeah. But Mackenzie is just given one note to hold the entire time, and that's pissy. And Jessica Chastain isn't given that much more. Yeah, and they're good. I want to say both actresses, I with what they're given, and they are crummy parts, parts that I don't think, even if I can hear every word, I can relate to. But I think the actresses are very good, both of them, in conveying the character. And I'm going to give this film credit for something I haven't seen in a whole lot of Nolan films. And maybe that's because this started with a Spielberg script is there is some warmth. I feel like a lot of Nolan stuff is very cold. The characters are cold. They're distant here. I, even with young Murphy, even though she's a bit one note, I like that there's this family relationship. I got caught up in I like McConaughey's acting in this. It, it almost feels like this was a role written for Tom Cruise, the way they dyed his hair and cut it. <laughs> but he does so much more with this. I was having like flashbacks to War of the Worlds, but I like McConaughey here. I like this family relationship. There's some warmth to me that I don't see in a lot of Nolan films. You see, and I see Nolan attempting warmth. It's like Nolan saying, they're like, I understand audiences want emotion. What is it? And he's going to try to put it here. You say War of the Worlds, Jacob. I just had a huge War of the Worlds flashback the first time I watched this, though. I mean, in every way. It's all about the father-daughter. Poor Tom. The older son is just, like, <laughs> left out in the cold. And I'm like, I haven't seen an older son this disserviced since Spielberg in War of the Worlds. <laughs> he gets a truck out of it. I mean, he gets a hug in <laughs> a truck. All right, you're on your own. And everything else is obsessing over the daughter. I mean, you get it to a degree, right? Because the daughter is the one more like McConaughey. She's the one that looks up and doesn't look at the dirt. Basically, if you're a farmer, it's very snooty in the Cooper household. You're like, oh, that's nice for you. But we're better than that. He hates being a farmer because he has the mind to, to look up. Yeah, and McConaughey doesn't respect his son because he's going to be a good farmer. So that's yeah. the end of that. And in this space crew, I actually like Matthew McConaughey. And I like Anne Hathaway. I don't believe either of them are the brain trusts that could be saving humanity as scientists and engineers, though. Neither one seems to even understand the words that are coming out of their own mouths. Well, McConaughey doesn't have to. He's being hired basically to pilot the ship, which again, I ask, what would they have done if he didn't show up on their doorstep the day before? They're saying that they would have faked it, but these people didn't do well in the simulators. They don't even have simulators to do. So yeah, they probably wouldn't have even gotten up out off the Earth's atmosphere and attached to the space station. And it's weird because NASA seems to know who Cooper is. Why not just go recruit him directly? Yeah, he worked for NASA under brand. Yeah. They don't bother looking him up, and he just shows up on their doorstep. Hey, and where's the scene with the old pilot? Guess what? You get to stay here and suffocate and die with the rest of us. <laughs> right, yeah. I think they are the pilots. I think Anne Hathaway and the rest of this crew would figure it out. Honestly, I'll just go ahead and say this. They got robots. 
the robots should be piloting the ship. And not only do they have robots, they have really cool robots. Yes. My favorite thing in this movie is Tars. My favorite character is Tars. <laughs> I think yeah. he's the most warm character, the most humor. The most emotion, the character who I didn't want to see die at the end was a robot. <laughs> well, his humor level is at 75%. <laughs> yeah, and you could adjust it. So I could, like, take it down to 65. Arnie could crank it to 11, you know. I, yeah, I, I think that it's like a iPhone, right? It's like a, it's, okay, of course it's the monolith. Yeah, it's the monolith that walks. Meets Hal, yeah. Yeah, but it's also a, a like a iPhone because it like it sits in a charging case when they're in the ship and <laughs> yes. like it just tells them everything they need. They don't need to know anything. It has all the data. Yeah, it's it's like Siri with better humor. Mm -hmm. I do like it as a misdirection because yeah, it's, it looks like a monolith. I'm thinking how it says early on. I'm ninety percent truthful. I'm like, uh -huh. oh, there's the setup where he's gonna screw them all. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad he doesn't. He even makes a I'll blow you out of the airlock joke. It's like. You know, they know that we know that if you've seen 2001, Nolan knows that we're thinking bad thoughts about these robots. But these robots, in my estimation, could be doing what McConaughey is doing. But we need to believe that our main character has a magical gift that no one else in the crew does. And in this instance, it's that he's a pilot, even though he's actually better than just being a pilot. He's smart. He could actually have been part of the brain trust because... He's that good of an engineer. Right, and if we're going to the Tom Cruise thing, I believe he's Maverick. I don't believe he's the engineer from War of the Worlds. And here, McConaughey's got both. I think he can do the pilot stuff. The robot, I'm glad they didn't go evil with him. I just, I expected it. And I'm not sure that that robot could actually walk. I don't know that without toes, the robot could walk that way, but I love the design for the reason of being different. And when it does the little cartwheel maneuver, that's pretty kick-ass. Yeah, it can taser you. Yeah, it's it's great. I think that if there's a toy to be made out of Interstellar, and it, I would say it's very anti-toyetic, but I would want one of these if they can figure it out. Yeah, and but the joke when they're lifting off, more humans for my robot slave colony. And like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't like his voice. I can say this. It never felt like the actor Bill Irwin that did the voice for this. It never felt like his voice was coming from that device. I don't know how you would convey that, but it just it didn't sync up with me. Sometimes when I would hear it, I would think that it was McConaughey talking or one of the other characters, because there's a couple other useless characters in the crew as well hanging in the background. And so it would sometimes confuse me that this was Tars talking. It needed the Knight Rider kind of little grid that could flash as it talked. A little red light moving back and forth. Yeah, up and down like that. It had these <laughs> screens that were constantly showing like Unix programming. I'm like, what's the point of those screens if you're not going to put like a RoboCop 2 Lawnmower Man face on it? Yeah, I think they didn't want it to be too personalized. I think that that's maybe even some of the reason why Cooper has an animosity with this thing. You get the sense like later he'll leave him on the ship. He's always changing his levels. You, you get the sense that he doesn't like, even though he's an engineer, or maybe because he's an engineer, he doesn't like the idea of machines being in any capacity of leadership. And that's what's going to change too. That relationship will soften. They're going to collaborate by the end of this, but at the beginning, for much of this movie, they're at odds. And yeah, there are three useless crew members. There's another robot, Case, who I mean, they even call out in the dialogue, you don't talk much. I don't need to. Tars is the star. Yeah, Case <laughs> is on the Endurance. Uh, they're on Earth. They take some ship. I don't know the name of it, but it connects with the space station with 12 different airlocks on it. That Endurance space station has already launched 12 other 
missions to go into the wormhole, and now they're going to take it and their little ship and go to the best worlds that they know of three signals where we have the best odds of finding habitable planets for our humans. And Nolan's going to take his time to show us this ship dock with the space station. Again, this is where I'm starting to really get Kubrick in 2001. They don't want to do Blue Danube, but Zimmer is, he's doing something a little bit classical here to no. give you that feeling as, as they lock up, they go silent a few times when they're in outer space. I kind of like Hans Zimmer by and large. I think he has a couple pieces in this movie that are really good. I think he was the wrong choice or he needed to do what they did in Batman and collaborate with somebody else because I realized during these very long looks at these spaceships and Saturn's rings and all of it that, yeah, it's the same vibe as 2001 if you didn't have that great classical score to accompany it. Yeah, I'm not saying it's better than Blue Danube, but they wanted to try to evoke that feeling. I like the score, and I, I think you're right. I think it's a reference. Uh, you guys have used the term ripoff. I don't think that he thinks he's getting away with it. Nolan knows We Know 2001. It's one of the most famous movies of all time. He is referencing it and he's doing so so that he can actually challenge Kubrick at the end he is going to make a grand statement of defiance against what Kubrick said in 2001 so all of this to me feels like he's approaching 2001 so that he can then condemn it or at least renounce it you see and I think referencing 2001 is the joke about the airlock when you're doing this you're aping it and it's an intentional aping I'm not saying he's trying to get away with it but it's recreating what was done, God, 50 years ago now. Yeah, I don't think it's a ripoff. It's definitely an ode, definitely, I, we could even say reboot, maybe. It, I, I did say that already, yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like he is, we'll see if it's challenging, but he's trying to update 2001, trying to do a modern day 2001. But without the classical music that has that familiarity and that airiness to it, these scenes, I want to get to the wormhole. And the effects in the 60s, yeah, let's just gawk at them and stare at them. These days, this movie has great effects. I think they're really well done. If these aren't practical models, they're the best CGI work recreating practical models I've ever seen. I'd love to see the making of featurette on the Blu-ray, but get to it, please. <laughs> I, I think we need to establish the loneliness here, that leaving Earth is hard. We saw the liftoff in juxtaposition with him driving away from his family. We need to establish loneliness here. We need to have emptiness. We need to have a lingering quality to it. I don't think it's the wrong choice to emotionally get us invested in how these people might be feeling. We do have Romilly is there, he's freaking out about the fact that there's basically just a thin sheet of metal between him and death, and they do a really neat moment where McConaughey plays, like, a thunderstorm for him as they drift through Saturn. I thought that was kind of haunting. I mean, I thought that that was an appropriate moment. I'm not as inspired I, as Kubrick made me feel with 2001, but I like these moments in space. I like seeing them float around and, I don't know, flip a bunch of switches is what they do, but yeah, there's something airy and beautiful at the same time about that, and I do like that. And I think it is beautiful. I think it looks great. I think perhaps it's a domino effect. They spent so long on Earth yeah. that by the time they get to space, I'm now impatient. And I think that, yes, in retrospect, they should have cut a lot from the beginning. You need to have the heart. I think he could have one child. <laughs> I think he only has one child, and then there's Tom. But we could just have a man who's raising Murph by himself 
and he has to leave him with a father-in-law that maybe he didn't even know very well. And we could have established that really within 20 minutes. And we could have these moments and not be impatient. I like the build-up because I don't know where we're going. When we go through that wormhole, nothing in the trailers, nothing that I've seen really has told me what to expect. I know what Kubrick did, and it was nonsensical phantasmagoria that they can't do that for the next hour. There will have to be a storyline on the other side. This should be anticipation, but you're, you're kind of right. I'm not on the edge of my seat. I'm not really excited until we actually are looking at the wormhole. And this is one of the things they're really proud about. They actually built computer programs not to design the wormhole to look like an artistic representation. They put in calculations that scientists, astronomers have made, Stephen Hawking, and whatever that was going to be, that was what was going to be in the film. So the fact that it looks like this bubble in space, they're claiming you can credit the scientists for that and not some visual designer. I liked the bubble because, again, I've seen quite a few wormholes from watching season after season of Star Trek shows, but the fact that what it really was was like a distorted funhouse mirror of what's on the other side and that you can enter it from any side, it's a cool concept to me and that there might be real science behind it to a degree is very cool. I was worried about communication. How do you send communication back and forth at the speed of light? They're saying they're going to send messages. They're setting them through the wormhole. Everything can travel through the wormhole, including light. And so you don't see the planet. What you see is the space that is on that other side of the wormhole. That was a really cool visual for me that I took away from it versus just glowing light that I've seen in the past. Yeah, that it's actual 3D representation. It's not just a flat, you know, Looney Tunes hole that you throw up against the wall that you're going to go through. That it is this sphere and there's a physicality to it. And yet no one knows how to do it. Like once they're actually there, McConaughey's like, oh, what do I do? And he's trying to actually turn a steering wheel. And Wes Bentley is like, eh, you're done. It's going to do what it's going to do. And we, <laughs> we get some distortion effects. Right out of contact. There appears to be an alien hand popping through the window, uh, giving the first handshake to Anne Hathaway. Yeah, this was really the distortion effect, Anne Hathaway's first handshake. I'm just getting flashbacks to Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey from Contact. <laughs> yep, he's done this before. But once we pass to the other side, I don't know. I wonder what we are going to experience here. One of the hiccups that I have with this plot is we're told once they're on the other side, they can't send messages back, but they can still get relatively quickly messages from Earth. The kids continue to send messages that they receive, and yet they can't tell the kids... A status update. Even though we had beacons from these three worlds they're going to visit sending messages back. Well, they are very simple messages, though. I, th I think that's the difference. They were sending basically Morse code or binary, giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down if their planet was good or not. That's all he's going to do when he gets in the magic black hole. Send the <laughs> binary code back and say, we're doing good. I didn't know. I'm sorry, honey. Get over it. Stop being such a brat. Yeah, that's a little bit fuzzy, and even on the second watching, it seems like they thought they would be able to send messages, but something isn't letting them. It might be Gargantua, which is the name of the giant black hole, but at one point they say, we're getting the ping, that means this planet is good. 
But later, they're like debating, this planet has better data. What data? I just thought you got a green arrow, you know? <laughs> well, here's my question. Did they know there was a black hole? That was a surprise. <laughs> when we get to the other side of the wormhole, wait, we're going to set up? Black holes suck everything in and destroy it. Why is that where we're going to live now? I love that. I got to say that. Can you imagine that, like, all right, we're living in a war zone. We're going to cross the border. <laughs> We're going to go to the promised land, and by the way, it's by a nuclear reactor that might melt down at any minute. Yeah, no, not might. It's like in the early stages. And in human spans, you might have five or ten generations. You might have a hundred generations. But, and I know they say it's not like a condo. Maybe they're just looking for temporary housing in between yeah. while they get back on their feet and find the planet to call home. It's a halfway house. Yeah, that, <laughs> we have not found New Earth for sure here. The original script did have a little more dialogue towards this. They had Amelia making the point that, well, our sun isn't something you'd want to be near anyway, and that black holes are just as good to set up a tent next to than the sun than a star yeah i felt like do a little more science talk about that because me as a lay science person black holes are a bad thing there was a movie disney made called black hole scared the hell out of me as a kid they're bad <laughs> it's a bad thing too yes yes <laughs> I, I remember that one and i saw it quite often as a kid but i was even confused it took me a while to remember i was like is a black hole the ass end of a wormhole are they connected <laughs> but there isn't i think that nolan has done a really bad job of establishing visual information in this movie. And that doesn't come easy for me to say because I think he's told some incredible visuals in the past. But just spatial relationships, where the ship is compared to the black hole, compared to these three planets, I want to be able to see these things and then I can know. Or just characters, where they're standing and who's saying what. I don't think that Nolan has done a very good directing job with establishing information. The effects work is where I have the problem with it, because when there, we get the external space shots, I don't know. When McConaughey whiteboards it, I, it's like, oh, thank you for doing that. <laughs> yes, 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 that's really helpful. Yeah, the whiteboard should be what we're looking at when we're seeing in space. We shouldn't need to do that, is my point. And that if Nolan were better at visualizing all of this heavy, hard science, I think all of us would be having a better time with it. I think that we would be more invested and what's going on if we knew what the hell was going on and where everything was related to everyone. But I do get, once we get through there, I mean, this movie becomes really episodic. And we talked about that with 2001, how there were the four different stories. And here, we kind of have that. We have, instead of the apes, we have the farmers. Take from that what you will. <laughs> then we have the NASA segment. Now, we have two planets that are going to be two different segments, and then Nolan adds a fifth one but our first one we're going to go to the water planet see i didn't take it as a reference to kubrick at all i felt like oh i've seen this before the three level dream trap this is where the movie really feels like it's taking heavily from inception i i think that nolan has thought big on the science but i think he's being kind of lazy and aping himself with the movie we've seen before. When they get there, they're going to see a wave cresting the same way they saw a city cresting in Inception. I mean, the fact that time is going to move differently inside the dream is like how, what, seven years on Earth is going to be one hour here on this water planet. This is Inception world. I didn't even take Inception with that time, but good point with that. Yeah, I wasn't thinking Inception because I kind of understand the theory of relativity. I I had to take that class twice where we studied that in college because I failed it the first time. But 
I, I get that, you know, as you move faster, time moves slower, something like that. So I didn't take that as inception. I don't know. I kind of take once they get to the other side of the wormhole, here's kind of, I don't know, the action piece. This is this is what you'd think of a typical sci-fi movie. We're going to go to the different planets. George Lucas did this with Star Wars. He always had three different planets in every film. So we're going to go to an ice world and a water world. Desert world, although we barely see it. Yes, there is that. But again, I just felt like that was Inception's way of handling it in the original draft. It was all one world. Everything got sucked to one place. And that might have been more efficient than having it broken up. But this movie is long. They have the indulgence of having a three-hour movie. So Nolan has the indulgence of having three different planets that are all very different, even though they're all pretty close to a black hole and none of them appear to have a sun by them. But one's going to be cold, one's going to be a desert, and one's going to be made of water. Well, keep in mind, a black hole is a sun. It's a sun that's collapsing. Yeah. So the hottest one should be the first one they get to, the one that's closest, the one where the time is the biggest distortion. And I like this time thing. I mean, Jacob, you were talking about the theory of relativity. I think I learned the theory of relativity from the movie Ice Pirates, but... <laughs> what? <Okay. laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> oh, I just remember I learned herpes from that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I really did like that time was a resource to them. The ticking clock on this is thudding, and I like that, that McConaughey is focused on saving the people of Earth. Be it his daughter, I don't think he cares about the sun, or be it all the people of Earth, I like that factor, and I'm invested in their journey. I want to see them find a planet, but it's a movie. I know it's never going to be stop one. They're not going to be like, oh, this is it. There's three signals. You know there's going to be three stops. If there's one signal, you would have been more invested in this world. Yeah, The fact that we know that there's other worlds means that we can't care. And plus, the whole shitty idea that time's going to be passing so rapidly everywhere else they cannot spend any time down on the surface of this thing. Even if Miller is right, I don't think you want to set up camp so close to a black hole. What I like about this setup is, yeah, okay, there's three planets. Obviously, this one's not going to be the first one, but I like the time thing. That's the investment there. Okay, we're just going to go down there, grab the beacon, and then analyze the data back up in space where time's relative to that on Earth. And I also like what Zimmer does with the score here. That it, I'm thinking of Philip Glass, but it's got this tick-tock essence to it. it. It sounds like a clock ticking. And for me, that's the tension there. We got to spend as little time on this planet as possible. It's not that I think that they're going to find the secret to where to move Earth on this planet. It's that they've created some tension by bringing that time element into it. Now, you've said that we don't think McConaughey loves his son. I don't think Nolan likes his male characters here either. We've had Wes Bentley, who's been in the mix for this whole time, not really doing anything. I keep waiting. Well, why did they bring him? What is he good for? He and Anne Hathaway are going to get out to find the beacon. They find out that it's been destroyed. They're having trouble moving around because the gravity's really heavy. She insists on keep wandering further and further away to find the data that they need that's on some disc or something like that. It's in a box. They're looking for the black box. Why is he out there? And why couldn't he get back into the ship first? He's standing by the ship the whole time. She's like a mile away. And yet, because Case does his whirly gig thing and rescues her, he doesn't even care to rescue Wes Bentley, who's standing right next to the ship. I think he was just being a gentleman and ladies and robots first. <laughs> it really was, but then he still stands outside. 
I mean, McConaughey is shouting, get to the ship! And yeah. he's like saying, Case, go! And just standing there and watching. <laughs> and then meanders. I understand gravity is heavier, but Anne Hathaway had no problem on that planet. He's like lumbering around. It's like he just wants to die. It's like yes. suicide. This tidal wave is coming. I don't know how you get a 30-foot tidal wave from 12 inches of water. No, no, no. That's the tide. The water's been pulled in. I think the black hole is creating these giant waves. So the water's real shallow because it's all in the air looking like a freaking mountain. Okay. But it's also going in every direction because McConaughey's like, oh, that's the wave. It's going away from us. Oh, here's another wave. Now it's coming towards us. Which way is the tide going? Usually waves go in one direction. That's why surfers don't get lost. But it's all very confusing. and. Honestly, I was thinking of The Dark Knight Rises. This is the most needless death since Batman took the nuke out over the ocean, right? There's so many ways Doyle could have gotten back on the ship if Nolan had wanted Doyle to get on the ship. And whether it's the staging or Wes Bentley's movements, but I just get the feeling like he's just lingering out there waiting to be killed. Why did they ever have him on this mission? I don't think he ever said anything. He helped Doc to the endurance. That was the one thing that while McConaughey was piloting the thing close he'd hit the button that actually made it click on and latch and tars is able to do that really well we find out later yeah exactly <laughs> so basically you have a doorman he's just missing his red shirt right like he can only die here because he has no function whatsoever to this story i find that terrible i find that bad writing I, that they never justify why this guy was there that he never does anything essential he's not the only one they have a token black guy whose whole point is going to be to die on the next planet. It's really a disservice to these supporting characters. Maybe the worst one is Topher Grace, but we'll get there. Romilly I like because when they get off the water planet, he's aged a lot. And I think he serves that purpose of driving home how much time has passed to these characters. But he doesn't really look that old. He's got some gray in his beard. He's bald. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Uh, to me, it didn't look like a 23-year difference. I mean, when we go back and we see footage of Michael Caine, who is still alive, John Lithgow is not. But yeah, he looks the same as he did 23 years ago. Yeah, he's just in a wheelchair. I don't know if I'm buying these uh, age transformations. Nah, I, I actually went with the Romilly one somewhat. He's balder, he's gray, they put some old makeup on him. He moves different, too. I gotta give the actor credit for, he's acting like he has arthritis. Yeah, the actor's okay. I just, and you're right. If there's a reason to have this character, he stayed behind on the endurance while everyone else was down on the surface. Once they're able to jumpstart the ship, they're there longer because, I, what, Anne Hathaway held up the door and there was water in the engine. But the point is, they get off. It took them, what? 24 years. Yeah, which is about three hours. Three hours for them. I thought it was really interesting. You know, they fly away and we see a dead body there. We think, yeah, that could be Wes Bentley's character. Or it could be that first scientist. In that world, she just got there a few minutes before they did. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who wondered who was that body. They never find the scientist. She couldn't have been that far away. No, I think that that's good. And I talked about how Nolan doesn't do very well at emotion. When they get back to the ship, they find there's 23 years of messages waiting for them. That is the one scene. And I realize Nolan is tugging at my heartstrings in very obvious ways. But McConaughey's performance watching those and Hathaway's performance upon seeing Romilly age, those are the times that they really sell me. You know, it's laughter, it's mania, it's crying, it's hysterics. It is the one time I really believe it. I mean, later on, McConaughey's going to be giving a raspberry-worthy performance. Don't do it, Murph! 
you know, but here he's doing an Oscar-worthy one. Matthew McConaughey is uh, giving a great performance throughout this movie. Later, he will be disserviced by a bad script. But yeah, I agree. This moment, well, they took a moment that I love from 2001. One of the most haunting things about it, when I think about it, is that moment in Section 2 where the bureaucrat calls home and talks to his daughter on her birthday and she wants the Bush baby or whatever. And you get that (laughs) loneliness. You get that. Here, they've just, they've expanded on it. He can literally watch his children age in front of him. I think this is the stuff that Nolan really inserted and insisted upon. It's not in that first draft much at all. And here, it is really hitting the fact that the mission to go out there and to make your art or to save the world or whatever, he's left his family back home. In order to make Interstellar, he has abandoned his children. And how does he rectify that? The pain of that comes through in this moment. And we're covering The Stand in a couple weeks. That was here. We're going to be covering Ocean's Eleven after that. We kind of have a reunion (laughs) because Tom grew up to become Casey Affleck. We got Casey Affleck, Topher Grace, and Matt Damon. Yeah, I don't know how much of this cast was publicized. I had no idea any of those three were going to show up here. So it was a shock. Tom grows up to be Casey Affleck. Yeah, I didn't know about Casey Affleck. I think I knew Matt Damon. I think I read that somewhere. But I thought he was the voice of TARS. Honestly, I had no (laughs) idea he was going to be a character. Uh, coming up later. Yeah, to see Casey Affleck and raising a child and on his own, keeping the farm going, and ultimately concluding that his dad is not coming home, that he is going to look to the dirt, that he is going to look down and give up on his father. Uh, Yeah, I thought that was the best his character is going to get. What he does in the rest of this movie... I cannot vouch for. But here in these moments, I really do like him. I agree. I can't decide if he married a real bitch named Lois because he's like, Lois tells me I need to stop thinking about you. So I'm not going to make messages anymore. And later on, is it Lois who's telling him our kids don't need no medical care? You know, she's almost like a Christian fundamentalist in that way. But then I think Lois is getting in the car to flee her husband. Maybe Tom is standing there saying, I refuse to trust doctors. (laughs) Yeah, I took it as Tom was the one who, I'm going to work this land. I'm going to prove I'm the best farmer because I couldn't go to no college that there ever was. Yeah, I don't know that it's just resentment on college. I think what they're saying is the more that we get cut off from each other, the more dangerous we become, the more Donner Party or whatever that we could potentially. Keep in mind, no electricity, the internet's down, people don't know anything anymore. I think Nolan is celebrating technology by showing what it means and how bad it gets for Casey Affleck and his family when they don't have it. Even though he is going to make TARS look like a bad guy through most of this, ultimately he's going to conclude that we need technology in order to survive. And we need something else. Okay, here's this great emotional moment where we're seeing years of Cooper catching up with his children, and then we got to have more science talk. What's the next planet we're going to go to? And are we going to follow our hearts? Oh, boy. And here's the thing is I like this exchange when Anne Hathaway, it turns out, and this is really poorly told. There's a scene early on where McConaughey's talking to Tars. It was a shock to me. Yeah. Explain where this gets revealed. Yeah. (laughs) There's a scene early on, and I got it the second time, where McConaughey is talking to Tars and asking if Brand has had something going on with Edmonds. I thought Edmonds might be Doyle. I I mean, we just got introduced to Doyle and Romilly, and right. we're being asked about Edmonds. And- Who the hell is Edmonds? Exactly. Yeah. These are names, and we, again, Nolan has not done a good job of, like, name with face. Like, establish these things. He doesn't. He even intentionally doesn't show us Matt Damon on the wall of 12. You know, they show us a couple of, like, probably the crew members' aunts and uncles standing next to... 
astronaut gear, but they won't show us Man or Edmonds or any of them. Right, and because of that, there's no way to know on first viewing that she's hung up on the guy that's on planet number two, that she wants to go to planet number two because she had an affair, what, 10 years ago? How old would she have been? 33 years ago. She really wants to go see her geriatric ex. Well, no, no, no. No, it's 33 years his time. Yeah, 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 his time. But you know what I'm saying. In the way that they would have known each other, he left on the mission 10 years ago. To her, it was something that happened a decade ago. She was, what, 16? How old is Anne Hathaway? I mean, she does not look like she's 30 yet. She's 31, so she would have been 21. And I like Anne Hathaway in this movie. I think she was the best thing about Dark Knight Rises. I think she's one of the best characters here, or if not characters, at least one of the most likable. She's selling me that this I'm going to follow my heart thing as best she can. But yeah, this stuff is dicey. Can we quantify love? Like, ugh, ugh, cringeworthy to me. It is. But the thing is here, I'm going with it. She has a relationship. I don't like her character at all. I like Anne Hathaway's presence here, but I don't like her character at all. I never believe she's smart. She kills Doyle. I don't care about Doyle, but it shows me she makes bad judgments. And now she's standing here saying, let me go see my lover, who's probably 68 now. And I just don't think she is a trustworthy person. You know what I think this movie should have done and didn't? She should have been in on that secret we talked about, where her father knew plan A was just a lie. And the only plan was plan B. Yeah, that's good. That's why she wants to go there, too. Because that's where she wants to spend the rest of her life. Yes. Yes. If she had been in on it, then I would have gone with all of this other stuff so much more. But they pull that at the last minute. Because middle-aged Murph is like, Brand, did you know? And she's like, I didn't know. The only one who knew this at this point, they're on Matt Damon's planet, is Man. And so Man knew. But yeah, when Anne Hathaway's doing all this follow love, I'm just taking her as an untrustworthy character. When it turns out she is right now giving us a speech about the meaning of the movie, oh boy. Well, I took it that that was what it was telegraphing. That was going to be the saving grace at the end. And I I don't mind this debate. I like that Cooper, he's more guarded. He's got the same motive. He just wants to get back to his daughter, mostly, maybe Tom. But I wish that was played up more. I mean, she calls it out, but the fact that they're like, can we quantify love? It's just so heavy-handed. It turned me off of that whole debate. Yeah, Nolan wants to make human emotional equivalencies to mathematical and scientific formulas. Later, he's going to go to Newton's third law and say, In order to get anywhere, you have to leave something behind, and that's going to justify also why he left his daughter, and I don't know that that can be done. I think a lot of scientists would scoff at the idea that our emotional content and lives can be ascribed and scribbled out the same way that, yeah, theory of relativity can. That's hard to swallow. Nolan wants us to go there. He's himself not comfortable with it but he recognizes we have emotions so there must be a reason for them (laughs) he recognizes yes i've seen all his other films he understands that there is something (laughs) called emotion yes i have heard about this love and i i am going to figure it out and work it into my schematics here now you mentioned the fact that who knows what does anyone know what michael Caine is saying as he's dying and saying that he lied no this was infuriating this like i am leaning towards the screen i I, what is he saying i was so upset yes (laughs) 
this is the moment that I literally reached for a remote control that wasn't there to turn on the subtitles. <laughs> yes. And even the second time, I did get the words and the syllables, but between his accent and his dying voice, and yeah, just the length of time between words, like, it is nonsense what he's coming out. It is very important that we understand what he says, and I dare say no one on first viewing could know. Marjorie asked me if Kane was even trying to hide his accent anymore. Was he even, or was he just like, I'm old, fuck it. Yeah. But yeah, this whole thing where he's like, I lied, it can't be done. But yet he's like, there's just, gravity can't be cracked. I mean, the whole thing that he really says is, we don't have the data. And what data we need, I don't know where anybody's getting this piece. That if you go into a black hole, you might solve the equation. But everybody's so gung-ho to just fly into that black hole. Now, here's where science really fails. You want to say love is quantifiable. My understanding of a black hole is the gravity is so heavy in one that... To use a Karate Kid reference, if you went in one, <laughs> squash like grape. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's not get there yet. They do give a, a reason why Matthew McConaughey, when he gets there, is not squashed. No, I do know they give that, but why does, at this point in the movie, why does everybody like, we need to go in there? They don't want to go in there. What I'm hearing, <laughs> I don't know if it's true <laughs> or not, but what I am hearing is that because time is not a constant, because time is relative, there's no way to formulate gravity. There's a relationship between time and gravity that there's no hard truth about it. The only way to test that theory is to see how time and gravity work on the outside of a black hole and compare it to the data on the inside so that you need to have a control group and then the experimental group and i think that the control group is earth and the experimental group would be inside the black hole that's kind of what i'm getting and since we have this robot uh, we can speed him through really fast and he can collect that data that's what they're talking about no one wants to drive into the black hole though true but a that a black hole would actually be able to give any answers and b that a black hole doesn't allow light to escape. That's why it's black. What's in it, well, we don't know because it is so strong of gravity, it even sucks light in. So therefore, it will also suck in any transmission from the robot at that point. I mean, that's the one thing that this movie needed to get to me that on two viewings I still don't understand is why they're all like, all right, let's go probe this hole. All I know is Event Horizon. I just heard that word a lot. Yeah, made me think of the <laughs> Sam Neill film. Yeah. Haven't seen it, but I, I know you're a fan, Arnie. It's a better Hellraiser in space than part four. I, is what <laughs> That's what me. I've said, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> we will see, I guess, someday. You know what? I can give the movie this. There's been a lot of scientific accuracy up to this point. Okay, they're going to figure out to go into the black hole or not. I've seen a lot of movies do this before and... Okay, so we're just going to stop being real at this point. I can go with that. And again, the fact that they're giving it to the robots, they don't want the crew to go in there. The crew's going to go to the third world. They're going to go to the ice planet because they dismiss the idea that Amelia could be biased and just leading them to Edmund's world because she likes him and, and wants to be with him. And they think that that's a hindrance to her logic. They're going to go with the other choice. Almost out of spite. I guess they feel like since man was the leader of all the Lazarus Project, he is the most reputable. If he's sending a signal, then you go to him because he wouldn't send a signal that was bogus. And talk about heavy handedness. Man's biggest enemy is man. Yeah. Oh, my God. Man lied. I, yeah. I mean, the fact that they had to call him man, I, you know. Yeah. yeah. Just it bugs the hell out of me. And 
that you have this movie. It's man versus nature in the first planet, second planet, man versus man. <laughs> yep, it is. And it's telegraphed even before we get there. I was surprised to see Matt Damon popping out of the waterbed. I don't quite understand this technology that allows them to go into hibernation. Come on, you, you're a fan of aliens. It's, it's hypersleep. Okay, yeah. It's hibernation. Yeah, well, why don't we just put all of humankind on that until we figure out the problem? And then they don't have to eat. We don't have to worry about the blight. They do say it will only last like a decade. They could go in and out of it, but it, this resources will get used up eventually. And they still age. I mean, you're just killing them. Yeah, you know what? I like the aging that they do to Matt Damon here. At first, I didn't even recognize him. They grade his hair up. He kind of looks pudgy and old. Mm -hmm. It was a surprise when he showed up, and I finally recognized it as Matt Damon. I kind of like this. There's something about the way he gives this performance that it moved me. I've got to say, maybe my favorite emotional connection here is seeing Matt Damon struggle with the fact that he lied in order to save himself, even though he was supposed to be virtuous. We're on the opposite sides of the table on this one. The moment they get there and Matt Damon starts doing his shifty-eyed stuff, and the first time I saw this movie, there was a guy next to me who never said a word, but man, was he expressive in body language and arm movements. And when Doyle died, he made that arm wave of what the fuck. And then at this point... He's just shaking both hands in the air, like screaming silently that Matt Damon is evil. This was <laughs> the biggest, I mean, even more than Matthew McConaughey was the poltergeist. Everybody in my theater knew Matt Damon was, oh, we all know. Yeah. Yeah. He took apart his robot. That was the big tell to me. He dismantled it. Yeah. He has Kip and we never get to see Kip, but uh, he would have been like uh, Case and Tars. No, it's obvious. Believe me, I'm not saying that I was surprised by this. It's so obvious that they, they have a ship. They could go fly down to see this supposed breathable part of the planet, but they're walking there. And he doesn't want to walk there. He's like trying to find any excuse. Oh, there might be a storm. Yeah, it's so obvious he's going to push him off the ledge right before they do it. But all I'm saying is that once we finally get into it, the way that Damon is delivering these lines, don't judge me. You haven't been tested like I am. The fact that he's trying to be there for McConaughey as he's dying and think of your kids. He still is trying to be an upstanding guy, even as he's turned into a murderer. I just think he's an interesting character at this point. I had flashbacks to another space film that I really love most of it. It may be the most visually appealing since 2001 and that's Danny Boyle's Sunshine mm -hmm. which turns into a slasher film for the yeah. last 10 minutes and almost destroyed everything I loved about that film not almost for me but yeah it, it is great movie until the end yeah yes and that's I'm like oh and Matt Damon okay I knew he was up to something when he just tries to straight out murder Matthew McConaughey's character I'm like uh like I had flashbacks of that film violent reaction for me they don't go quite as far again i think whenever they want to tell us about love it's too heavy-handed you know the last thing you see before you die is your children do you see your children like some of this dialogue just does not work for me i'm gonna split the difference here i like the stuff that he's saying on the way out before he attacks him i like that he's talking about the you know the last thing you see your children it's so important that we have these connections i like all of that the moment he attacks but then he's standing there, and it's just, maybe it's a hard thing to sell. You're standing on an ammonia planet wearing a space suit, walking away saying, I can't watch this, it's too hard, do you see your children? That just didn't work for me at all. I get that you're trying to make him a understandable villain. Yeah. But it's, the performance and the dialogue just aren't coming together for me in that scene. And it's 
trying to be done like an action scene but this movie does action scenes in a non-action movie way so it's not adrenalizing me either we get tars and brand bringing the ship to save him meanwhile romilly is doing something i don't understand for reasons i don't understand they get him killed for reasons i don't understand He's trying to reboot up Kip to get the information about the planet. Supposedly it has information, but I guess man booby-trapped Kip? Yeah, that's the way I take it, is that if anyone got close enough to find out that his findings were bogus, they would die. It, w- it would blow them up. Which begs the question, how long did Matt Damon think he could keep up this act anyway? Did he really think he could get off the planet without anybody realizing that he had hit the alarm button falsely yeah at that point isn't it just better to me a culpa yep i lied to you but will you take me with you anyway right <laughs> maybe he couldn't risk it you could say the same thing about michael kane i mean would matthew mcconaughey not gotten on the ship if he said earth is fucked and we have to find a planet for these eggs i think he wouldn't have i think he would have stayed because his motivation was saving his daughter yeah yeah he didn't care about the eggs he wanted plan a or the sun. He doesn't care about the human race. He cares. It's all about home. And I think that as we get towards the climax, that's the theme they hit again and again. For human beings, it's all about the relativity of being close to home. And Arnie, you're saying you're not getting adrenalized. One thing that is, again, working for me, yeah, this isn't a typical action movie. I mean, Man and Cooper, they have these cool, like, arm jets so they could fly around these cliffs. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, but you don't get a big action scene. But again, I want to go back to Zimmer's score. It gets cacophonous now. You know, talk about... Again, alluding to something from Kubrick's film where with that the choirs here, it just it's like pianos being bashed, and it, it did take me back to Dark Knight Rises, where you get this score that just drowns out everything. It does work for me though at these moments of tension when you get these big swelling sounds going on. I'm not the action movie guy, but I did like the one moment where he's using his helmet to crack McConaughey's. And he's like, you're going to kill yourself as well. You have 50-50 odds of cracking your own helmet. And he's like, those are the best odds I've had in decades. (laughs) Yeah, I did like that a lot. Because I was sitting there like, how? it's the whole theory of a headbutt, you know? (laughs) What are you doing when you headbutt somebody? (laughs) It hurts your own head. Never headbutt someone. (laughs) So I liked that they called it out and the response was very good. And you've just called out my favorite part of Zimmer's score. This made me want to buy the score, this piece. Yes. Up until this point in the movie, the score has either been non-existent, they've done a lot of the space stuff in Dead Silence, because that's scientifically accurate, there's no sound in space, kind of, and the score has been downplayed, but during this rescue of Coop, and all the way up to the space station explosion, and then the space station crashing, is some great music there. Yeah, I like the score through and through, and I like it in this moment. I do like the way that they cut from silence into music or loud noises. They'll do it later when Damon is actually docking and he's making a big speech about how he had to justify what he had to do and then all of a sudden the airlock explodes. And <laughs> In a movie full of big speeches where people just pontificate endlessly, I wish this had happened to more of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it can be effective. Perhaps Nolan uses it one too many times. I feel the same way about the arching thing, you know, the thing you did Inception with the with the city curving upwards. We saw it with the wave. We saw it with the dust. He's got good ideas, but I do feel like, you're right, this movie is too long and it's a little repetitive. And just on the score, I was really thinking up until this scene with the fight with Damon that Zimmer was just the wrong choice for this movie. Now I just think he was the wrong choice for the first three quarters of the movie. (laughs) Okay. I planned on coming on the show going, I hate Zimmer. Now I was like, no, Zimmer can do good stuff, but we just, we needed Blue Danube. (laughs) 
But this whole thing where he goes to the space station and doesn't lock the airlock, he's not the best of us. He's not only the worst of us, he's the dumbest of us. The airlock isn't going. He's still going to go in there and blow up a twelfth of the endurance. This was a stunner. I got to say, most of the time I felt like it was easy to predict how they would get out of it. But here I'm like, oh my God, if this thing is blowing up, they really are screwed. There is no way home. (laughs) You weren't thinking what I was thinking then. I figured the endurance would blow up. They'd turn right around, and the three of them would fly right into that black hole and be Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, you're right. It leaves them no choice but to go into the monolith, you know, to do the funky 2001 ending. But no, my mouth hung open when I watched this thing explode. They don't do it, though. They go for some kind of Michael Bay Armageddon moment <laughs> of Matthew McConaughey being like, it's necessary. and That is the stupidest line. Stupid, yeah. Can we agree? It's not possible. It's necessary. What the f- Yeah, this is a different movie, guys. You weren't making this movie. And they don't know how to make this movie. And I don't want to watch this movie. So why did they do this? It does feel like something out of Armageddon. All all of a sudden, like, he's spinning a ship around to get the same rotation as the space station and debris falling. Like, now it is an action movie. And I I didn't expect that from Nolan. Or I, I expected him to do it a different way. And he's not doing it well. I mean, he's not even doing it as good as Bay did. I'm expecting Aerosmith to play, but I'm not (laughs) feeling the adrenaline. I'm just not. I think the visuals are great. This is not a knock against anything. I think as well as anyone can do one of these action scenes, the cast is doing good. But that line, it's the it's necessary one was, oh boy, it's worse every time I think about it. And it's just, I at no point think that that ship's going to crash down and kill them. There's no suspense. They're not even going to kill Brand. They've killed their red shirts. So there's just no tension in this scene for me. It's visually stunning and yet leaves me completely cold. Yeah, and one thing, side note about the visuals, it should be pointed out that uh, Nolan is using a different cinematographer than he normally does. He always uses Wally Pfister for all of his films since Memento. (laughs) He really should have instead of that horrible transcendence. Yeah, well, that was my point is that, yeah, Pfister (laughs) went off to direct his first movie and it was Transcendence. and Which wasn't. No, it was not. (laughs) A little listener insight. Stuart and I both went to see that thinking we'd do a Lawnmower Man bonus review and just we came back and we're like, fuck that. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even want to discuss that for a minute. I don't even want to now. Let's just drop it. That happened and we're moving on. But the cinematographer they got, he certainly likes a lot of yellow. I feel like this movie has a sickly, like, yellowy look to it. And obviously that was something Nolan wanted. Maybe he would have had Fister put it in as well. I don't think this movie looks as good as some of the other Nolan movies. I know that sounds strange because technically some of these effects are great. But when we're on Earth, when we're we're seeing some of this stuff, it does not look as great as I wanted it to. I think I'm going back to Insomnia. I think there are some great landscapes. I want to go to the ice planet. It looks beautiful, but I think it's Iceland. You can go. Yeah, it is. I've actually I've actually hiked those glaciers. No joke. I will be putting that on my bucket list then. You should while they're still there. While they're still ice. <laughs> Before the dust. <laughs> yeah. yeah, before the dust. <laughs> but yeah, when when we're inside the spaceships, some of those, it's not staged in a way that I'm engaged. It's not shot in a way, it, it doesn't look appealing. Yeah, I, there's just something yellow about it that I don't like. I don't see the yellow in like the spaceship scenes. I got it on Earth and I thought they were just trying to tell us Earth is kind of sickly and orange, but the rest of it... I was wondering if I saw this in the blown up IMAX, if I would be blown away by the visuals. Seeing it in the 4K, they actually, for some reason, put that on like a tiny screen and it looked horrible. It, and huh. I didn't even notice the resolution. 
Seeing it in the regular digital projection was on a big screen, not IMAX size, but big, and it looked fine, but I was never blown away. Except for a couple of the overhead shots of the ice planet, I just, nothing here looked great. I just want to call it the effects work because I've just, I'm sitting here going, is that CGI? Is that miniature? When Damon is trying to dock, it looks actually like bad miniature work. It reminded me of some of the stuff we saw when we reviewed 2010, more than 2001. (laughs) Yeah, those little hooks that are supposed to connect the dock. I got annoyed how many times they kept cutting to that. But yeah, it looked like a bad miniature with those hooks trying to hook on. It looked like a good miniature, but it looked like a miniature. Yeah. (laughs) Where it looked like a bad miniature is when he's trying to align it. And it just, it didn't seem to move right based upon how everything else I'd seen move went. But... No, I just wanted to say that I'm not damning this because it doesn't look good. It doesn't look amazing, but it's not the visuals that are taking me out of the endurance of spinning towards the ice planet scene. It's just, it's anachronistic in this film, and it doesn't carry tension for me because McConaughey never fails in this movie. Everything McConaughey does works. There's never the moment where McConaughey's beating himself up because he wasn't as good as he thought he was. And he does save the endurance and then comes up with the plan on how to get Brand to Edmonds, her boyfriend, and that third planet. But he has to sacrifice himself and Tars. They both drop into the hole. Yeah, this did surprise me. I'm like, okay, here's the twist. It wasn't Cooper as the ghost. It's going to be Tars. Tars is going to be the ghost because they talk about how they'll fire Tars into the black hole. When Cooper decides to go, that did catch me. I I thought, okay, that's the twist. It wasn't Cooper. But no, it still is Cooper as the ghost. I'm glad it was because I was kind of turning on the character. He's so cold to that robot. He's like, see you later, Slick. I was like, wow, that's, I know he's a robot, but still, you're going to throw someone in a black hole and say that? I was, I felt bad for Tars, but he's saying that because he knows he's going to see him in the same spot. He's going to the other side too. Yeah, I like that he says, see you on the other side, and they mean of the black hole. And he's going into the black hole or the monolith. I think that they're (laughs) referencing exact shots. I was surprised they didn't do the, flashes were like the slides of McConaughey's face. They did kind of pose him in the same way, though. Yeah, they didn't do the freeze frame, but I did notice they got him in the same position. I thought it was going to end with him being a space fetus. I'm not even joking. (laughs) It kind of (laughs) does. Yeah. (laughs) Should be said in the original draft, the point was they got to one world. They found out the Chinese got there already. Wait, is this 2010 or Interstellar? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it kind of was, actually. It did remind me a lot of the things in 2010, the book that didn't really make it into the movie. But yeah, they end up sending that probe back. No one else goes through the black hole. They send a probe back. And that's the thing that the family picked up in their truck at the beginning of the movie. That's what gave it a point, was that probe had all of the information they were going to need to fix the problem, and when they were dismantling it for parts 40 years later, Murph, who was actually a boy, it was not not a female in the original draft, figures out that, hey, this has some encrypted information and saves the day. Here, by actually having it a physical Matthew McConaughey, I think it's because, yeah, we have Nolan wanting to sell the idea that, hey, I may spend all of my time making movies, but I really love you, kids. I really, (laughs) really love you. Or at least my daughter. (laughs) But this is a renunciation of 2001. This is not, they built all of this 2001-like apparatus so he could get to the top of the peak and say, aliens are not going to save us. 
There is no other being in the universe, perhaps, but that doesn't mean that we're doomed. We don't need a message from God or aliens or space to save our own ass. We can save ourselves. See, I thought the renunciation was Nolan doesn't shut up. And that's the problem for this ending. <laughs> that too. Kubrick, there was a genius. Now having seen this, you know, there was supposed to be all this voiceover explaining everything in 2001, all cut. That was the right move. The fact that they over explain everything here at the end, you know, with TARS, oh, this is a bridge that the fifth dimensional beings have built and we could see every like, shut up, I know. And why? how does he know? How does he know any of this? Because he's collecting data somehow? He's been there a little bit longer, I think. Although with the time distortion, who knows how long any of them have been in there. And is he in the stacks of books with him? I mean, they're communicating by radio, but Tari's never walks up to him. And when he gets in this bookshelf, at first I'm like, oh, it's kind of plaid and things. Maybe they're really going for like the colors of going into the monolith. And I'm like, wait. Those look like books. Don't be the books. Don't fucking yeah. be the books. The fucking books. I can tell you what. I was going through the movie, and I knew pretty early on. I'm like, this isn't 2001, which is okay. Maybe it's just going to be 2010. Maybe it's going to be Contact. Maybe it'll be The Abyss. And when we hit this bookcase, I'm like, oh shit, he's gone Shyamalan. This is signs. This is we're gonna keep swinging, baby. I mean, no, no. And like, I don't even think I heard anything that anyone was saying. Once I realized that they really did the ghost thing, I just kind of checked out the first viewing. Watching it the second time, I can at least say I understand what transpired, where the first time I was just shrieking and tearing out my hair. <laughs> I, I understand what transpired. I want to know, though, if Jonathan Nolan basically took his dialogue straight from Taylor Dane's Love Will Lead You Back. I mean, Jesus Christ. The fact that, like, McConaughey is like, yes, this is quantified love. I'm like, what? Mm. I still don't get that. I still don't get how love saved the day. It's because love is what led him there. Love was his navigational pull. Love led him back home. Right, yeah. It's like gravity. <laughs> love, gravity, and time are all the same thing or cannot be impacted in the same... I don't know. Yeah, that's a stretch, and uh, it's one that you'll either want to do or not. I don't want to. I'm not sentimental in this way. I heard sniffles in this audience. I heard laughters in mine. I heard people that were touched, and I don't want to demean that. I do. But to me, this is hollow. 100% <laughs> honesty here. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was kind of sniffling at the beginning when he was leaving Murph, and I, I like those moments, but this, now that everything's coming together and... Grown up Murph is getting it. I, it's again falling flat for me. I, I have actually enjoyed the visual and, and a lot of Zimmer scores going into this. It was this final act that really just like was a thud too hard on my head with the message here. Seriously, I was welling up in some of those earlier scenes, but wanting to punch myself in the face for it because it was so obvious manipulation. <laughs> I don't respect myself for being touched when you've got little Mackenzie Foy screaming, Dad! I mean, you don't want to let yourself be that obviously manipulated, but it worked. But here, I was laughing. And yeah, I'm sure there were people in my audience who were touched, but I heard chuckles throughout. That was a very split decision among both crowds I saw this with. To me, this is ridiculous. That He also shrank, right? I mean, these books are giant compared to him. He's like Stuart Little. No, no, no. They're, I think it's just infinite books. I don't think they're giant. He's behind them just pushing them or banging. But he has to punch, and they're like, he's punching giant books. No, they're not giant books. 
They're not giant books. It's just the stand, Arnie. It just looks giant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a giant book. <laughs> that is my monolith. <laughs> what we're told is they, which they being a human society we will never see, have figured out how to see time in total. And I remember the book Slaughterhouse-Five. I don't know if you ever read Kurt Vonnegut. Yes, yes. But it really, I love the way that Vonnegut talked about this, that time was like looking at a picture. You could see it all at one time. You didn't have the sense that you were in it. Human beings, we see time of all in moments. They cannot. They cannot influence individual moments. So to them, this thing is one long stream of, I guess, split seconds, basically, is what he's looking at. But McConaughey is special because he can influence it. They cannot. Yeah, they built this bridge, as he calls out, for him to go into because he can influence it. Right. So for a short period of time, they're going to allow him to have this dialogue because they've chosen her to save the future. Honestly, I would have preferred if they just sent the pro back, but they want it <laughs> understood that both characters were driven home. She has also come home. It should be pointed out that she was living in that underground bunker and she has come back to the farm because she believes instinctively, somehow, through love, that she will look at her old things and be able to figure out the problem of gravity. <laughs> and we have these terrible exchanges with her and her brother who will not go to the underground medical facility because he's a farmer. Translation, he's stupid. And her boyfriend, Topher Grace, is going to get like a tire iron and beat him back. <laughs> but they don't have to fight because of love. Yeah. <laughs> Topher Grace shows up early in the scene where Michael Caine is dying. And I'm like, I haven't seen Topher in a while. Is his career so bad that he is taking this cameo bit part, this like pop-up role? And then he became a boyfriend character. They're inexplicably setting Tom's fields aflame so that they can distract him go into the house, steal the family, and then stand around. Tom comes back from putting out his livelihoods fire. He's got ash all over him. And Murph just goes up and like, yeah, Topher Grace is standing there with a tire iron <laughs> expecting a fight. And Murph like embraces him. Daddy loves us. Tom is confused. And yeah. I am too. But this is where I got to say, you said, Stuart, you like Jessica Chastain. I do not like Jessica Chastain at all. I do not think she can act. Zero Dark Thirty here i think she overacts in everything she does and i think she is toxic to these scenes wow no i i definitely don't agree i wouldn't put any blame on really any of these actors i think this is an unfortunate dialogue nolan wanted to do something in parallel something happening on earth at the same time things are happening in space that is in parallel this fight is kind of unfolding at the same time that damon mcconaughey are fighting and that's when we get the first sense that it could come to blows but we don't know why. I have to believe that they shorn this movie probably to even get it down to this three-hour length. Actually, nothing's on the cutting room floor, though. What? Yeah, Jonathan Nolan stated that Chris doesn't shoot things that don't go in the film. Wow. So my belief that Topher Grace has a better role somewhere <laughs> in the ether and that it could be found, that we could punch through a bookshelf and see it? No, huh? That's what Jonathan Nolan said in interviews. Now, maybe there'll be deleted scenes on the DVD or not, but apparently what was filmed is what we get. Okay, well, then, I don't know, Topher, you're better than this. That's all I gotta say. He must have just really wanted to have Christopher Nolan on his resume, and, and I get that. You know, some directors you, you take the bit part for just to work with. Maybe he can get a lead out of it next time. Maybe he can be in the Superman movie or something. Who knows what he can work <laughs> out of this. But this does not serve him well, and yeah, you just wonder... 
It's Topher Grace, so you're paying attention to him, but you just wonder why by the end of this. Yes. It was very confusing and distracting, really. Here's my biggest problem, I, I think, with what this movie does. Because I get it. Okay, as soon as McConaughey goes into the black hole, I'm like, all right, Bran's going to go to the planet. She's going to populate it with all the, the frozen sperm and eggs. That's going to be the humanity that evolves into these fifth dimensional beings that go back and help save Earth. The problem is, okay, they go, they build the bridge because they know McConaughey. I guess they've passed these tales on for millennia as they evolved. They could build this bridge for him. But they also opened the wormhole, right? Like, that's my big problem is this group had to get to this galaxy before the wormhole for these fifth dimensional beings to be future humanity who are saving the current Earth. The way I take it is that they can throw gravity through things, but it's not precise. Which is to say that Matthew McConaughey can hit a book and it's going to be the exact book he wants to convey a Morse code message. They know they want to throw a wormhole back so that we can use it, but they throw it 40, 50 years before it's actually needed or something. I think. I think what they're telling me is that they are less precise in their ability to use gravity to influence the past. But they can do what McConaughey can do, just not as good. And I get that. My problem is, how do we get to that future humanity if that wormhole was never open? You have to say that these fifth dimensional beings, this future humanity was destined to be? Jacob, I hate to bring this movie up, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> but my understanding from talking with physicists is the most accurate display of time travel in film is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Don't be sorry. I love that film. <laughs> and, I mean, we're having this deep discussion about 2001 and everything, and I got to bring up Bill and Ted's, but it's the Bill and Ted's theory, Jacob. How did McConaughey pilot the ship if McConaughey didn't push the books and do the dust to give the coordinates? How did humanity survive? Well, future humans have to open that wormhole or else it creates a vortex which implodes all of time and space. When Bill and Ted say, later on, let's steal my dad's car keys and put it behind here, <laughs> I mean, later, humans are going, later on, let's open this wormhole so we save ourselves. Why they don't go, hey, let's send something also that gives the secret of gravity so that we don't have to send a robot and a man into a black hole to find the power of love. Wes Bentley could still be alive. Yeah. Why wait till only 50 years before the end of humanity? Why not send it, you know, back when we had a space program? Because if there was a huge anomaly around Saturn in the 80s, I have a feeling the world might have united into fearing alien attack. And I think that they were shooting for that. They just, they missed the mark. They cannot be accurate. So there you go. So future humans, you suck. You just aren't <laughs> good enough. How about future, future humans who could actually send messages back doing something? Right. Yeah, they did as good <laughs> as they could, and, and they get us to the conclusion. And they get father and done reunited at the homestead. Uh, all of this is theoretically what you want out of this climax. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I kind of just wanted it to end at the bookshelf. The fact that this movie keeps going. <laughs> that Cooper finally sees Murph. Now it's Ellen Bernstein. And Murph, after years of being like, where are you? is like, yep, yeah, you can go now. Yeah, a parent shouldn't have to watch their child die, so get out. I'm going to spend time with my grandkids. Yeah, I have my own family. I don't need you, Dad. <laughs> yeah, this didn't happen in the original draft. They knew that they wanted to have a reunion, and in the original draft, they didn't. They just had, he did survive, he did come back to Earth, and his descendants met him, and that was enough. But would that have been enough? Would you have been fine with Jessica Chastain's great-grandkid or whatever hugging Matthew McConaughey? Is that the same thing? I thought at one point, you know, they take him to, uh, they've reconstructed his farm and now it's like a museum and they have these video screens. 
Wasn't one of those old ladies, wasn't that Murph before she turned into Ellen Bernstein? Yes, the very first woman who says, my father was a farmer. And I wondered if that was going to be the daughter all growing up the first time I saw it. Yeah. I'm looking for it. I did too. Yeah, that is her. Just leave it at that. That would have been good enough for me that he sees that screen and realizes she's passed. You know what I'd like to believe? Because the second time I watched this movie, I'm like trying to find everything out. And remember what Matt Damon says, what do we see at the moment of our death, our children? Maybe Matthew McConaughey died either in the crash at the very beginning or went sucked into the black hole and everything else is his dying imagination. I actually did have that theory. The movie goes on too long, though, to give any credence to that. But yeah, they gave so much time to Matt Damon seeing the last thing you see as you're dying is your children. Here he is seeing, well, at least his favorite child. <laughs> yeah, that's the death scene. He should die. Yeah, there's no reuniting with Tom. Fuck Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even if he, he literally helped her through this bridge, that should have still been his death scene. He dies after that. They find his body by Saturn, and that's it. He's dead. Yes, he needed to sacrifice. Who wanted him to have an affair with Anne Hathaway? Where did that come from? Yeah, there was no romantic tension between them, and I'm glad. I'm glad we're past the point where all movies have to have this love interest because they're there. That Murph, old Murph, with whom Matthew McConaughey has no chemistry. I mean, Matthew McConaughey and Ellen Burstyn <laughs> probably met like three minutes before that scene for as close as they appear. Did you see him at the Oscars where he had to present with Kim Novak? It was like a repeat of that. <laughs> and that he sends her out for Brand? Really? Why? Is it the power of love is leading him to Brand? Brand is still eulogizing Edmund. She's creating like an altar to dead Edmunds. I don't understand why he's going. All right. Here's my true theory is that he's going because at the beginning, he's like, we've forgotten. We're pioneers. We're explorers. And he just can't be reined in. Yeah, he doesn't want to be on that farm that they mm -hmm. rebuilt. He doesn't want that. He never wanted to be a farmer. That is true. No. And I think that he's going to steal this ship just because he can't be reined in. He wants to be the pioneer, the explorer. Is he just going to help Brand set up camp, you know, so the welcome party is a little bit more polished when people get there? I can't even imagine he's getting there that much sooner as they're all in that space station about to enter the wormhole, I think. But that he's going to her is so unexplained. And if it's to start a relationship with her, that's stupid. If it's not, it's ambiguous. Either way, I'm frustrated. Yeah, they told us in the beginning he lost his wife and, you know, he still wears his wedding ring and John Lithgow tells him he should date that teacher that <laughs> endorses that we never went to the moon. They've kind of barely told us that he needed a woman, but if that's true, I just never thought it was Hathaway. They established that Hathaway was his surrogate daughter. This feels like incest, him running off into her <laughs> the arms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of thought that the second time I watched it, and he's like, when I come back, we might be the same age. Are you going to date her? Yeah, I got a weird vibe off that. Even the young Murphy gives him a weird look, like, are you saying what I think you're saying? <laughs> got a lot of embryos. <laughs> yeah, this ending was frustrating, and I imagine that we will be looking at it in different ways. Like the ending of Inception, it took four years for somebody to figure out the wedding ring is the key to if... Leo is awake or asleep, and that that actually says he was awake at the end. I imagine four years from now, somebody who's frame by frame this may come up with a theory like we're coming up with of it's all a dream or something, or 
there's something we missed as to why he's going to brand. But upon two watchings, but doing a weekend of release review, I'm just ready to leave the theater and this podcast. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Interstellar? Jacob. For a lot of this film, I enjoyed it washing over me. This the Zimmer score, the visuals, going to these different planets, going to space. Maybe I, I just like space ever since 2001, seeing someone with ambition and wanting to, you know, not look down at the dirt. Yeah, I, I enjoyed a lot of that. I realized, though, as I was watching this, this story is kind of a mess. It's jumbled. And so how much of this can you just go for the ride? Like, I finally, I'm not going to listen to your guys' science talk because... I don't understand it. I wish maybe there was a little more Kubrick here. Turn it over to the audience to interpret. There's just so much talking here, and I get that this wants to be hard sci-fi, but it becomes incomprehensible at times, and it's not helped by some of the plot points. But I did enjoy a lot of this film. I'm definitely going to pick up the score. I try to buy it, and it's not out yet, but I'm definitely picking it up as soon as it's available. So for me, this is a, it, it's on the weaker side of Nolan stuff. I'd probably put it around The Dark Knight Rises, where there's a lot of ambition, there's a lot of sound, a lot of noise, a lot of great things to see, but it's also kind of a mess. So it's a recommend, but more on the mild side. Stuart. Look, I'm a Nolan fan, but I can admit it. This seems like a misstep. This feels like he repeated a lot of what he's done before. And although there is ambition in achieving a, an emotional story, that was the weakest part for me. I feel like a lot of this blubbering, call your real daughter, tell her you love her, bring her to the set, but don't stick it into this film because it really, it doesn't sit right with me. But is a misstep a red arrow? I had to think about it. You know, there are directors I admire that make these kind of off movies. You know, Lynch made Dune, Spielberg made AI, Aronofsky made The Fountain. Are those not recommends? Sometimes a director's mistakes are more interesting than their successes. I do find this movie fascinating. I'm going to give it a mild recommend, but I'm not so much a fan that I can't say that this isn't one of his worst films. It's, I still think Dark Knight Rises is his worst film. That might be a red arrow, actually. If I went back and saw that movie, I'm not sure I would give it a pass. But this one, for now, I think there is enough about it that I appreciate it on the second viewing to give it a pass. The first viewing, my first IMAX watching, it was a red arrow. It took me seeing the movie a second time to go, okay, I can now see what was good after a first viewing only affirmed what was not good about it. So very mixed feelings, mild recommend. But based off the way you frame that recommend, if this hadn't been directed by Nolan, would you still recommend it? Because it sounds like you just want to recommend it because it's Nolan. Well, let me put it this way. I look at it as a piece in his body of work. And so, yeah, it's interesting in comparison to his other work. If some no-name had made this movie, it probably would be less interesting to me. Right. I mean, but if you look at, like, Friday the 13th Part 3, it's part of the Friday the 13th series, but... That doesn't mean you can't Red Arrow an installment while still recommending the overall body of work and say it's worth seeing, you know, if you want to, you can go see this. That doesn't mean this movie on its own would necessarily get that rating if it was a no-name. Right. And yet you're standing by the green. That's shocking that you'll give a green arrow to a movie because his name is on it. It's difficult to know, Arnie. If this were made by somebody else, I probably would want to like it less. So ask me in a couple years. I usually think that things have to shake out here. It's on the, the margin. And like I said, first viewing, I didn't like this movie. I saw what I didn't like, and that's what sat with me. Coming back to it a second viewing, I saw a lot of things that I did like. I did like those moments with Damon. I did like 
the images of them floating through space to the tropical thunderstorm. There were things to embrace. So I would hate to cast that all away just because I really didn't like the ending, which is, I think, where most of the problems come from. It's a loose story. It's one of Nolan's worst directing efforts. I, I will say that. He's done a very bad job of establishing his information, but he tried to speak from his heart, and that makes it kind of interesting and kind of a muddle as well. And I'm not that far off from either of you, honestly. This movie has a lot of problems. It also has a lot of good things, and I hope I've come across as praising some of those good things. It has emotional moments, and I gave The Dark Knight Rises a green arrow because it emotionally manipulated me in a way that worked. And I'm like, if I hadn't felt anything during Dark Knight Rising, the way that movie was, it was a red arrow. Here, this one manipulated me. It's obvious manipulation, but it did work there. I am glad to see a science fiction film, a big budget one, no less, that is about science and not Armageddon or Star Wars or something, which doesn't mean I don't like those films. I just like variety out there. And I think that right now, Hollywood films are in danger of monotony, that there is something different out there that something that looks at science and tries to have some reality to it, it's not something we get every day anymore. I mean, it's not uber rare. It's not a unicorn. There is Contact, which was made not all that long ago, and by that same Kip Thorne. But that it's doing that works for me. Some of Zimmer's score really works for me. And certain scenes I like. I like that they inserted the subplot of Matt Damon there. I think that's an interesting wrinkle. Not a necessary one, but an interesting one, and keeping in line with 2001 and the whole segment of Hal's betrayal. But is it a recommend? It's a weak one. It's a weak recommend. Because there's enough here. I never felt, even on a second viewing in two days, I didn't feel the length. So many movies, I'm not literally clock-watching, but I'm mentally clock-watching. And here, the first time I saw it, probably at about the two-hour mark, I'm like, how long have I been watching? How much is left? I just didn't know. It was around the time of the stacks. I'm like, really, how much is left? The ending is a complete misstep, but this is a movie worth seeing overall. I'm giving it the absolute weakest of recommends. Yeah, we're on the same page then. So just to sum it up, since we've now seen all of the Christopher Nolan stuff, for me, yeah, this ranks way at the bottom. I, I think he's made five excellent movies, and the ones that I really love, the ones that make me like Nolan, the hearty recommendations, I think I'd go Dark Knight first. And Memento, I don't know, it's a coin flip. Memento or Dark Knight is his finest work, quickly followed by Inception, quickly followed by Prestige, quickly followed by Batman Begins. Then there's a drop. After that, I think Following is a good movie. I think Insomnia is a fine studio movie. And then you have the two problem movies, Interstellar and then Dark Knight Rises. Again, if I went back and saw Dark Knight Rises, I haven't seen it since theaters. The more I think about that movie, the more I just don't like it. So that could be the red arrow. That is, for me, his weak point. Interstellar has weak moments, but there was enough for me to say mild pass. I agree. Dark Knight is the strongest for me. There was no question there. That movie just speaks so much to me, not just because it's a Batman film, but just it's timely. Just the craft, everything there works. The real coin flip for me was Memento or Prestige. I that I really had to think about. Huh. I'm going to give the second spot to Memento. Like watching it again after over a decade, it, it just hit me. It was so strong. But Prestige, I was the newbie there, but I really enjoyed that. Then I'd go Batman Begins and Inception. Inception's just 
I mean, all of these, though, are just fractions of points right. apart from each other. These are his best works, yeah. Yes. Inception's just a little colder. That's why it's down on the bottom end. But then for me, you know, you put Interstellar and Dark Knight Rises at the bottom. They're cacophonous messes, but I kind of like what he's trying to do with those. So I go Interstellar, then Dark Knight Rises. Following, for me, it's a neat little student thing, but there's not a whole lot there. And then Insomnia is at the bottom. It's just, I, I feel like that's such just a studio picture that he really had nothing to do. So that's the one that I would never have gone back to unless it was for this podcast. I, have, of course, have a totally different ranking. And I guess that's why I'm yes. not the Nolan <laughs> fan here. I'm the Nolan skeptic. But I really have a hard time picking my favorite between three films. You guys didn't give Inception the credit I would. I've rewatched that film so many times. And so Inception, Memento, and Dark Knight are like tied for first. Mm, that's me. I think I had them in a different rank, but you'd put Inception first? No, I, I mean, it changes by the day is the problem. Yeah. I sat down and I just kept moving those three around. I think, though, Memento's the number one. That's the movie that clicks the most with me. I mean, a crime thriller with the way it plays with time the performances, the humor. I really think that's my number one. The only reason Dark Knight isn't is I always feel like, and it may be outside of the scope of what Nolan could do, but I feel like the Joker just literally left hanging. It, it felt like there were some compromises at the end that just take it away from perfection, whereas I think Memento is pretty much perfection. And Inception, I mean, God, it's just such a damn good film. But Heath Ledger may beat leo in performance so it may go memento number one dark knight number two inception number three but all three of those are like the top echelon the reason when i said at the first podcast of this recent series when we were looking at following i said i'm not a nolan fan but i'll give anything nolan does a look i'm more interested with his name attached is because of those three films the second tier are films that i like following and then dark knight rising i like them then there's the ugh, and that's Insomnia, followed by Interstellar. Interstellar, I mean, that was just so on the border of not recommend. It just, ugh. But I enjoyed it enough to give it the green, but there's so much wrong with it. And Insomnia, hey, I'll take a generic studio film and say it is better than what Nolan gave with Interstellar. And then Batman Begins, and at the bottom, Prestige, a film that I don't think was worth my time, even for what good was in it. Yeah, okay, well, that's... About what it sounds like. At least we can agree. Three classic movies. Dark Knight, Memento, Inception. We all love those movies. And this one, eh, uh, we all gave it Green Arrow. It's telling, though, that we all agree his last two films are kind of weak. It's like his batting average is going down. Yeah. His next film is going to be a make or break for me. Because I used to feel about Spielberg that I have to see everything he does. And then he made, you know, Amistad and The Lost World. So... There are directors who, and I used to think I have to see everything Brian Singer did, and I don't feel that way anymore, so. Jack the Giant Slave came out. Jack the Giant killed that! Yeah, <laughs> he sure did. So, honestly, I think Nolan, I, I'll, his next film's gonna decide if he still even becomes a director who his name makes me give him another look, or if he's a director who made some films I really like, but is just getting watered down, like Tim Burton with upcoming big eyes, you know? I just, no interest. Whereas Burton, I used to watch everything. Yeah, I mean, he's in danger of having said all he has to say. I think what you're talking about is when an artist has given all that they had and then they just start to repeat themselves or they do things that are disconnected from what they're passionate about. Yeah, I did feel like there was a lot of his movies already in Interstellar and that he was repeating things that he had done better. I would like to see him 
creatively renewed. Yeah, maybe take some time off. Maybe spend some time with your family. Read some books. I wouldn't know how to advise him on where to go to next, but I'll look forward to it. Whenever he gets around to making a film, I just hope that he makes it for the right reasons and that he's as passionate about it as he was in making Memento. Will this get him any Oscars? Do we want to play Oscar Wanks? Uh, You know, that's a difficult game to play. I know that they're saying this could be the one to finally earn him the gold statue. I kind of hope not. Because nothing else good has come out this year. (laughs) It is difficult. I got to say, there is no big studio movie that's going to be a popular Oscar favorite, I feel like. I think it'll get nominated. I think it'll win for some technical awards. I don't want Nolan to win for this one. This is not his best directing effort. It would make me sad to see him win for the wrong picture. But yeah, this is no Gravity. You know, Gravity last year was such a better film than this. Another hard science kind of sci-fi film. And if Gravity didn't walk away with it, this film doesn't deserve to. That's not to say it won't. I mean, it's also competition against what else came out that year. Sure. But I don't even think it deserves, like, best visuals of the year compared to some of the other movies we've reviewed on Now Playing. Agreed. Yeah. No, I I agree. I I think Interstellar is a great-looking film, technically a good film, but not Nolan's best. And, yeah, I think I've seen better stuff this year. So, yeah, in no way is this the best film of the year, but neither are the Oscar winners, so who's to say what will actually win? Yeah, I care less and less about the Oscars. You know, we know this isn't the year's best film. Yep. Is that for Big Hero 6? Yeah, is it even the weekend's best (laughs) film? I'm hearing it's not. As of this recording, I have not yet seen Big Hero 6. You know, we actually had a conversation. Big Hero 6 and Interstellar opened the same day, and I'm like, We do so much Marvel, I think Marvel deserves priority. Stuart obviously had a different reaction. (laughs) And, you know, I I learned to compromise, so... Oh, okay. (laughs) That was awfully big of you. I think Interstellar is the more talk-about kind of movie. It's the one people are going to walk away having questions. You're right. Big Hero 6 may be more entertaining. I don't know. I tend to not want to consume a lot of animated movies. I am a little Marvel-fatigued. But yeah, if they made a good film, I'll certainly be ready for it next week. And then after that, we're going to get to that big book on the bookshelf that McConaughey couldn't push, The Stand. So our full schedule is at our brand new website, a website made possible thanks to donors of our show. We could not do this show. We could not go see movies twice. I mean, movies are expensive. They're more expensive for an IMAX ticket than a silver or gold donation to our show. If you enjoy our show and what we do every week, we need you to donate. And right now we're in the middle of our fall 2014 donation drive where we're going to say thank you to those of you who do open your wallets for our show with bonus podcasts. That's right. We've already covered our gold series, Leprechaun, seven Leprechaun movies, six with Warwick Davis, one a reboot that just came out in home viewing formats. All those shows are available for a donation, $15 or more. You'll get them all right away. If you go platinum, you're also going to get our silver level series, which is half completed. We've covered Fellowship of the Rings, Two Towers, Return of the King, and soon we'll be covering Peter Jackson's Hobbit, Unexpected Journey, Desolation of Smog or Smaug or Smoog, I will talk about pronunciation, and ending with the new Battle of the Five Armies, which I saw a preview for before Interstellar. It actually looks very epic. All of your donations go to the show, so hopefully you want to hear those bonus reviews. If not... We would still appreciate your donation to help us do the show we do every week. Head to our brand new website at nowplayingpodcast.com. Click the banner at the top. You're going to see different buttons. Click the button that says pay now and has Gollum on it. If you want to do silver level Lord of the Rings, $15 or more. Click the 
button that says pay now with the Warwick Davis leprechaun, not the Hornswoggle leprechaun, because we don't even know what that looks like after seeing the film. (laughs) (laughs) And do $15 or more for a gold level donation, or the one that has an animated Bilbo Baggins as well as Leprechaun and Gollum in the background. Click that $30 or more and you get 16 bonus podcasts. And thank you so much for your support. And thank you for listening to this review of Interstellar. We appreciate you just taking the time out of your day. This is a longer review. Thank you for spending it with us. Absolutely. And thank you for your donations because otherwise I'd have to say... Do not go gentle into that good night. (laughs) Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's hard leaving everything. My kids. Your father. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. I have no idea when you're coming back. I'm coming back. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Shutter Island, Gangs of New York, The Wolf of Wall Street, Avatar, 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Batman series, and hundreds more. We need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it. And at the NowPlayingPodcast.com homepage, you can find a link to our forums where you can discuss these films as well as links to Now Playing's Twitter and Facebook pages, where you can chat with the hosts and read written movie reviews. We're going to be spending a lot of time together. We should learn to talk. Emma not too. If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, or you can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and more at the Now Playing Cafe Press store. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You don't believe we went to the moon? I believe it was a brilliant piece of propaganda. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Just being honest. I don't think you need to be that honest. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We'll find a way. We always have. Cooper is resistant to go, not wanting to leave behind his children, especially since, due to the theory of relativity. <laughs> you are gonna have to explain that to me. <laughs> Sounds like a sex term. <laughs> relativity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Britney Spears' next single. <laughs> she doesn't have one. <laughs> Do this before so that we understand it and get invested in the mission. The problem is. 
is that I have a police siren. <laughs> I heard something there. <laughs> yeah, the beach. Hold on. Yeah, oh, they, yeah, they got to chase them. It'll take a little bit. Bad boys, bad boys. <laughs> oh, now I hear it very clearly. Oh, you yeah. just no, started hearing it? Yeah, it's been yeah, going a while. It's, yeah. it's, it's there. Oh, it's almost gone. Okay. It'll be gone by the time I forget my thought. Maybe I could just hear the echo from where I am. <laughs> That's why it's so clear in my <laughs> headphones. Oh, now he's got a friend. <laughs> and the funny thing is it was probably just some guy that burnt a garbage can or something. Like, it's not even, like, a major crime. Is burning garbage cans illegal in California? Well, yeah, I, I think that would be classified as arson. I used to burn garbage cans in my college dorm. Yeah. A lot of what you did in college was illegal, Arnie. <laughs> I don't think it was illegal to have a bonfire with textbooks and a garbage can. In California, it definitely is. On a fire escape? <laughs> yeah, if We should do a podcast about your college years, because that would be something. We must never speak of it. <laughs> there are some things, I agree, can never come out. Romilly is doing something I don't understand for reasons I don't understand. They get him killed for reasons I don't understand. Well, he's they're trying to reboot up Kip. Kip. Is it Kip? Kip. With a Kip. P? Kip would be more awesome. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Michael. Yeah, you know what? I like the aging that they do to Matt Damon here. At first, I didn't even recognize him. They grade his hair up. He kind of looks pudgy and old. Mm -hmm. It was a surprise when he showed up, and I finally recognized it as Matt Damon. Oh, my God. That was... I didn't realize... <laughs> I just thought he was having a bad year. I didn't realize that that was makeup <laughs> effects. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> you know, he is, like, over 40. Who? I haven't seen him in a while. I, okay. <laughs> he was an action star at one point with those Bourne movies. That's true. And he's going to be again. That's how I hear. You're right. But uh, he will be doing this again, too, next year, in fact. Next November, he's in a movie called The Martian. It's uh, based on a bestseller I read about a man that gets marooned on Mars for four years and has to figure out how to survive. It's kind of like Castaway. I think it's going to be great. I think he's going to be great in it. Glad you read it. You can do the books and nachos. <laughs> <laughs> Inspired. I want to know, though, if Jonathan Nolan basically took his dialogue straight from Taylor Dane's Love Will Lead You Back. I mean, Jesus Christ. Whoa. Now there is a reference that we needed. What? <laughs> <laughs> and I like this time thing. I mean, Jacob, you were talking about the theory of relativity. I think I learned the theory of relativity from the movie Ice Pirates, but... <laughs> What? Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Oh, I just remember I learned herpes from that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I learned that from a girl in college. <laughs> <laughs> One of the stories you can't tell. Again with the college. We cannot even get that into this show. <laughs>